Shalom and bonjour. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. I am the creator, writer, and editor-in-chief at The Unexpected Cosmology, and class is in session. Welcome, everyone. For those of you who are just starting out on the Autumn Feast with Yom Teruah, Shabbat Shalom. Actually, maybe I should ask for it now. Can I get a blast of the shofar? Anybody? <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. I heard something. I heard something. All right. I think it's safe to say that the Feast of Trumpets can officially begin for those who are on that calendar tonight. Life is a journey, and our next destination, where we're going tonight, isn't even on the map. Believe me when I tell you that what you are about to experience tonight is a doozy. I am turning in my latest paper for your consideration with a grand total of 70 pages, fresh off the press too. Researching and writing anything that amounts to 30 pages is pretty much my weekly limit. So hopefully you can imagine that I pushed myself well beyond my established limitations over the last few days to get this ready for you guys. I'm not even sure if we'll get through it all tonight, and if not, that's okay. Taking our time is better than rushing a good thing. Still, I, <laughs> I hope you're, cu you're caught up on your beauty rest. Brew a pot of coffee if you need to. I have. If at any time your husband or wife comes into the room and asks for you to go night-night, rest assured that we will attempt to plug this latest episode into YouTube land for your later consideration. Our realm is a rather large place, still unexplored in full, as we shall come to see, and there is much ground to cover. And so I want to delve immediately in. But first, let's open with prayer. Self-existent, eternal one, Yahuwah, most high Elohim, from beginning to end, you are unchanging. We lack nothing, and in fact, we possess everything that we need while in your company. We find rest and shalom in you alone. We lie down at night knowing that you send your angels to stand watch over us. Be our friend and our guide. Be our navigator on this journey. Teach us obedience. Be merciful and gracious with us. Show us the ancient path. Lead us to your country, to the fountain of living water, to the fruit of your orchard, to the worshipful mountain. Clothe us with your Ruach HaKodesh. Your instructions and righteousness are offered to everyone, and yet it is only you who give the eyes to see and the ears to hear. May our persecutors and may all your enemies be surrounded by the cloud of darkness and become lost in the labyrinth of their own design. We ask that you hear our prayers that you do not forget about us, and that you keep your promises as you have stated. Salvation comes from you. Wisdom comes from you. Even repentance is your gift to give. We long for the joy of your kingdom and eternally belonging in you. We pray all these things in your name, in the name of your son, Yahusha HaMashiach, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Amen. Amen. So far, so good. All right, so I dropped a link into the general voice chat, and it is a PDF file that everyone can pull up and follow along. I highly recommend you do so, or else you may be a little lost. The way I'm going to work this tonight, you'll see what I'm talking about as we dig into this, but I will be reading from the Odes of Solomon. There are 42 Odes in the Odes of Solomon. I picked a random dozen out, maybe, 
uh, 12 to 15, not sure how many. And then I go through each one of those and I give my own commentary to it. So what I'm going to do is uh, we could take our time going through this. I'm going to read an ode, give my commentary on it. Then I will ask if anybody else has anything, any observations or anything to throw in before we move on. Does that sound okay? Let's get started. So this is called Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood and the Odes of Solomon. Introduction, The Resurrected. A, a breatharian is somebody who does not require food or water for his or her day-to-day -day living needs. No obligatory digestion system. A breatharian simply receives energy directly from the ether, much as a plant would. Somebody who fully devotes themselves to the lifestyle would begin to de-age within several years, or so I'm told. Hypothetically, they would go on living for a very long time. It's okay, you can say it. Forever. Not so long ago, a mere two centuries by my current count, it is believed that Breatharians dominated the landscape of the one-world Tartarian Empire. And then one day, they got up and left. Just like that. Gone. Sure, there were still fleshly mortals filling the landscape, all of whom provably had digestive systems and would have required food and water for their daily calorie burning. But we shan't be talking about them much, as they were the ones left behind. The crowning jewels of the kingdom were the immortals, diamonds in the rough. More than anything, the empire we've only just recently begun to discover was defined by their existence. They were Elohim among men. By now, you should be made well aware that the spectacular cities, fortresses, buildings, cathedrals, and palaces found on every single civilized continent of this motionless plain, once belonging to the lost world of the Tartarians, is none other than the millennial kingdom of Messiah. That is my hypothesis at any rate. From my side of the keyboard, I can only assume you've returned to the discussion because the mud flood is a proven reality and the very notion that Messiah's kingdom already transpired as a fulfillment of prophecy has gotten the better of you. Rest assured, it's the lens by which we'll be viewing our own reality today. Historians tell us their version of past events, but we know better. We're being lied to about the flat earth in order to hide the creator, but that's only the beginning of the deception, as his story is being hidden from us. Yahusha, the son of the Most High Elohim, came. He conquered. He ruled with a rod of iron. And as we shall come to see, the resurrected co-reigned alongside of him. Those are the Breatharians, in case you were wondering. The immortals among mortal men. Now, in 2019, precisely one year before the worldwide planned demic, I moved my family to Europe. The state of the New World Order has since changed all of that. Here we are in the New World again, America, but I'm not complaining. As members of the rebellion against the empire, we're all in this together, no matter what continent of Messiah's kingdom we presently find ourselves. At the time, knowing nothing about the mud flood, I had intended to study architecture in order to better understand enlightenment thinking, particularly the occult's part in it. Nothing, however, makes sense of official history. Upon landing in France, our very first stop was the once remote palace of Versailles. 
That's a discussion for another time, though, because our second destination was the still remote Le Mont Saint Michel, which is quite literally an island unto itself. Like something one might imagine in The Lord of the Rings, tidal waters swell and ultimately swallow any entrance to the fantasy city on a routine basis. Until rather recently, there were no permanent roads leading to Le Mont Saint Michel. Residents and visitors alike would have had to wait for the tide to be repelled into the ocean and then walk before they returned. Despite taking 20 years for my wife and I to arrive there, I left the place feeling a sense of shalom, but also unease. We are told the cathedral began uh, begun construction just after the arch, uh, yeah, just after the archangel Michael appeared in the year 708 and instructed devoted followers to build it as a pilgrimage site in his honor, hence the unease. None of that made any sense, though. Where was this cult of Michael worship that they spoke of? And there were other an unanswered questions. How could such a magnificent structure never once, over an entire millennium and some change, invite destruction by invading armies, including England during the Hundred Years' War? But even more importantly, how did its inhabitants even manage to grow sustainable food? That's a lot of people to feed over hundreds of years, and who was funding it? Exactly. These questions are not unique to Le Mont Saint-Michel, as problems arise within grand structures all over the world. We are expected to accept the fact that they didn't have toilets or plumbing. What, the people didn't need to poop? Apparently not. They didn't need heat either. Ever think about that? And that's why the residents of Le Mont Saint-Michel needn't worry. The ether nourished their every need, including, but certainly not limited to, electricity. They were breatharians, resurrected souls. They'd already eaten from the tree of life, and if they wanted more, all they needed to do is return to paradise. If what I'm saying is even remotely factual, the expectation, in the very least, is that we should see residue. By that, I give this example. Corrupt officers in the know can scrub a crime scene or plant evidence in order to lead the investigation towards their preferred reality. Our perception is being hacked at and altered all the time. Doesn't mean unintended blood samples or fingerprints can't be found. Well, I believe I found some of the residue in a little-known read called The Odes of Solomon. Historians will tell us the Odes of Solomon is a collection of primitive Christian hymns, which, if true, is fascinating in and of itself. Only those who refuse to acknowledge the mud flood events and the worldwide empire which preceded it, however, will give this analysis, analysis any credence. As you shall hopefully come to find, and I certainly aim to give this the old college try, Odes of Solomon only makes sense contextually when we come to terms with the constant hints being leveled our way. Actually, hints is a poor choice in verbiage. The writers weren't hiding anything. If you pay attention, they'll tell us again and again. The odes were penned by the resurrected. <clears throat> there are 42 odes which make up the book. Altogether, they relay a great many ideas, and I needn't cover every one. What I aim to show is that the doctrines presented within aren't simply scripturally accurate. They are indeed accurate and reliable. 
Even more so, they reveal a very different place on the prophetic timetable than the official narrative would have us believe. If the writers of this book were simply presenting these con concepts as metaphors, syrupy Hallmark cards and wisp of wind, which ultimately amount to nothing obtainable except feeling, then that's malpractice. I don't know about you, but for the remainder of this paper, I'll be imagining these odes recited or sung on the tidal island of Le Mont Saint Michel, while they plead with mortal pilgrims to turn to the truth. Let's begin. Ode number one. It, it reads, Yahuwah is on my head like a crown, and I shall never be without him. Plated for me is the crown of truth, and it caused your branches to blossom in me. For it is not like a parched crown that blossoms not. For you live upon my head and have blossomed upon me. Your fruits are full and complete. They are full of your salvation. The Odes of Solomon, Ode 1. The Odes open with the image of a crown planted upon the head of its writer, presumably upon the heads of the expected readers and singers as well, though obviously not everybody. It is a past event meaning the crown has already been set in place and currently resides there. What does that remind us of? Oh, I don't know, maybe Re Revelation? Before you tell me the crown is only another syrupy Valentine's Day card intending to convey a philosophical idea while simultaneously failing to stick the landing in its promotion, take careful note of the, of the blossom branches and the fruits which are full and complete. We have just been given another picture of the Holy Family at work the Father, Son, and Ruach HaKodesh. Just as importantly, they have completed their work of salvation. The branches, which derive from the vine, Yahusha, has blossomed. Undeniable proof that the vine has already conquered the world in Ode 1 will be given as commentary to Ode 23. Furthermore, the fruits of the Ruach are complete within every set-apart soul. As we shall come to see, this informs us of one thing only. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The, the writer of Odes is resurrected from the dead. Let's read Revelation for ourselves. This comes from Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Yahuwah Eloheinu to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasures they are and were created. The 24 elders seated upon the thrones are most likely other Elohim, enlisted into Yahuwah's divine council and not resurrected people. So what I'm saying is, the writer of Odes is not one of them. One might argue that the resurrected saints become Elohim, but that's another argument entirely. And anyways, in a little while, we shall see the sainthood surrounding the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. Obviously, the Elohim cast their crowns before the throne in recognition that only the Most High is worthy, in their words, to receive glory and honor and power, being the creator in everything. Also, in their words, they were only created for Yahuwah's pleasure. The reason I decided to include this passage, seeing as how no resurrected people are arguably present, is because Ode 1 gives us added context to the physical crowns. As we can clearly see when overlaying both texts, 
the 24 elders recognize that the crown itself is a representation of Yahuwah. The writer tells us the crown ceremony was a past event. A literal crowning of the sainthood can be found in 2nd Esdras and gives stunning detail as to the timeline uh, which the writer of Odes finds himself in. We read, this comes from 2nd Esdras chapter 2, 42 through 47. I, Ezra, saw upon Mount Zion a great people whom I could not number, and they all praised Yahuwah with songs. And in the midst of them, there was a young man of a high stature, taller than all the rest, and upon every one of their heads he set crowns, and was more exalted, which I marveled at greatly. So I asked the angel and said, Sir, what are these? He answered and said unto me, These be they that have put off the mortal clothing, and put on the immortal, and have confessed the name of Elohim. Now are they crowned, and receive psalms. Then said I unto the angel, What young person is it that crowns them? and gives them palms in their hands. So he answered and said unto me, It is the son of Elohim, whom they have confessed in the world. From this passage, we glean the following. Yahusha, the son of Elohim, personally rewards those who confess his name in the world by placing a crown on their head. Again, the crown is Yahuwah, just as we might read elsewhere that the clothing is the Ruach HaKodesh, and we will get to that tonight as well. We know the resurrection has already taken place because the angel Uriel tells Ezra that the people on Zion, too numerous to number, had already exchanged mortal clothing for the immortal. As part of their crowning ceremony, Yahusha also gives them palm branches. Well, we see these same saints with the palm branches in their hands in Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, we read, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, so that mirrors Ezra right there, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Yeshua to our Elohim, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four living creatures, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped Elohim, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom. And thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our Elohim forever and ever. Amen. In review, I have just taken two witnesses, Second Ezra and Revelation, and laid them over the Odes of Solomon, the first Ode. There are further witnesses which I've promised to get to, but already we can see the same scene at work. Think I'm reading too much into this? Let's keep at it then, because we've only just begun. Now, before going on to the next Ode, is there any Anybody here who has any observations or thoughts that they want to throw out? I say that because this is so much material to go through that we'll never get back to it if you don't jump in now. Okay, yeah, no, moving on. Yeah, no, go when ahead. you're talking about, uh, what was it, 9, um, verse 9 and 10 here with the white clothes and so forth and the palms in her hands, are you re referencing this being? Uh, being done at some point of the millennial kingdom uh, prior to the millennial kingdom, wh where are you where are you placing this? So the 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 odes of Solomon talk about that the the writers of these psalms talk about that they have had crowns placed on their heads, and that these crowns are actually the Most High Yahuwah. 
And so what I'm trying to show is um, here establishing the same sentiments given in prophetic literature of Second Ezra and Revelation, showing a future event in which everyone will be crowned um, the, the set apart the saints. So here in Odes, they say the crowning event has already happened. And and in Revelation and Second Ezra, it's a future event. And again, you know, people are going to say, "Oh, this, this is all just metaphorical." Well, it, it's that that case is going to close more and more as we go into this. Yeah, so. who's to say? Who's to say it's a one-time event? But yeah, again. All right. Uh, may I ask uh, where the Odes of Solomon's come from? Because I haven't heard of that uh, writing before. Well. <clears throat> So according to official history, it was extremely popular um, as maybe as early as the second century. Some historians may place it earlier, um, second, third, fourth century in there, that it was widely read, sung, recited. And so I, 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 I'm finding some of that really strange because when you start digging into the odes, well, you'll see for yourself the way mm -hmm. they talk about things like you wouldn't they're all talking about these historical factual things that happened that official history never talks about so, so I, I i'm not i'm not saying this with skepticism because i'm i'm a huge fan of some of the early writings um such as the clementine writings um but um yeah i i guess i just want to look at it myself later if it's possible to get access to it to see what it says and uh, evaluate it well, absolutely. That's for everyone to evaluate. You can, uh, I will actually, I will, I will have it on the website soon, but you could do a, just an online search and dig it up for yourself and read it. There's PDFs, there's websites, there's 24 of the odes. Um, I have it in hardbound book. You can get it in book. So, all right. So I'm going to be jumping. Now I'm going a little bit out of order in some of these. So we'll be jumping around. I'm going over to ode nine and this is what it says. Open your ears and I shall speak to you. Give me yourself so that I may also give you myself. The word of Yahuwah and his desires, the holy thought which he has thought concerning his Messiah. For in the will of Yahuwah is your life and his purpose is eternal life and your perfection is incorruptible. Be enriched in Elohim the Father and receive the purpose of the Most High. Be strong and redeemed by his grace. This is verses one through five. The first thought you likely have, if this is millennial literature, is to ask why the writer would plead for his audience to open their ears. As a reminder, there are mortals living upon the earth, even though the set-apart has been resurrected. The entire theme of this book is highlighted in the fourth verse. Read it again if you need to. The will of Yahuwah is your life. His desire, he desires your perfection which is eternity with him and incorruption. Not everyone will choose that though, despite the following warning. Verse six, for I announce shalom to you, his holy ones, so that none of those who hear shall fall in the war. Odes of Solomon 9.6. Apparently, and despite Yahusha Messiah reigning upon the earth, which we'll see more of as we progress, there are those who will fall in the coming war. Having the ears to hear is a virtue. Continuing, verse 7. And also that those who have known him may not perish in the upcoming war. And so that those who received him may not be ashamed. 
An everlasting crown is truth. Blessed are they who set it on their head. It is a precious stone, for the wars were on account of the crown. But righteousness has taken it and has given it to you. Put on the crown in the true covenant of Yahuwah, and all those who have conquered will be inscribed in his book. For their book is the reward of victory, which is for you. And she sees you before her and wills that you shall be saved. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon uh, 9, 6 through 12. Almost all of these Odes end with hallelujah. Wars. At the time of writing, there were wars, plural and past tense. There is also another anticipated war to come, as previously mentioned. We know the conflict has resided at present because shalom is announced to the holy ones of Yah. We are further informed that the wars which were and the war still to come are all on account of the crown. It appears as though the people of the earth want everything which the crown offers, just not what it represents, as very few care to walk in the knowledge of Yahuwah. It says to put on the crown in the true covenant of Yahuwah. And as my readers are hopefully made aware now, the covenant which is true is only offered through Yahuwah's instructions and in righteousness as given to us by his word, Torah. Who are these wars with exactly? We are given a clue when told that those who put on the crown will be inscribed in his book, the book of life. It's yet another reference to Revelation. This comes from Revelation chapter 13, verse 7 through 9. And it was given unto him, the dragon, to make war with the uh, set apart and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the sephir of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. So the wars past and future are against Hasatan and the beast. Let's just go on, jump on to O23. Joy is for the holy ones, and who shall they alone? Grace is for the elect ones, and who shall receive it but they who trusted in it from the beginning? Love is for the elect ones, and who shall put it on but they who possess it from the beginning? I want to just quickly, I, I only had time to do a first draft on this. And one thing I wish I put more focus on was the fact that they keep throwing, they keep, the, the writers, as you guys will see, the writers of this book identify as being resurrected from the dead. Okay, I'm not making this up. We'll get to that. And they keep advertising grace. Look, guys, we're giving you grace. We're giving you grace. What would happen if you were a mortal sinner living amongst the resurrected set apart? It would be really difficult because they're perfect. They have the Torah written on their heart. We will see that uh, further on. Uh, when their heart is circumcised, completely circumcised. And what they're saying is, look, we know you guys are going to sin. We know you're going to screw up. We're just giving you grace. Just accept the grace that we're giving you. All right? So let's move on. Walk in the knowledge of Yahuwah, and you will know the grace of Yahuwah generously. So there you go. Like they're just saying, look, just walk in his knowledge, and you'll get grace, guys. Like You're going to stumble. It's okay. We'll work through this both for his exaltation and for the perfection of his knowledge. And his thought was like a letter. Let me repeat that. And his thought was like a letter, and his will descended from on high. And it was sent like an arrow, which from a bow has been forcibly shot. And many hands rushed to the letter in order to catch it. They can read it. But it escaped from their fingers, and they were afraid of it, and the, of the seal which was upon it. 
because they were not allowed to loosen its seal, for the power which was over the seal was greater than they. But those who saw the letter went after it, that they might learn where it would land and who should read it and who should receive it. But a wheel received it, and it came over it, and a sign was with it, the kingdom and of providence. And everything which was disturbing the wheel, it mowed and cut down. And it restrained a multitude of adversaries and bridged rivers, and it crossed over and uprooted many forests and made an open way. The head went down to the feet, because unto the feet ran the wheel, and whatever had come upon it. The letter was one of command, and hence all regions were gathered together. And there was seen at its head the head which was revealed, even the Son of Truth from the Most High Father. And he inherited, pay attention to this, and he inherited and possessed everything. And then the scheming of the many ceased. Then all the seducers became headstrong and fled. And the persecutors became extinct and were blotted out. And the letter became a large volume, which was entirely written by the finger of Elohim. And the name of the Father was upon it, and of the Son, and of the Ruach HaKodesh, to rule forever and ever. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon, O23. The message couldn't be any clearer. Messiah had already conquered the earth by the time O23 was written. You will probably flip through the pages of your Illuminati written history book and then tell me, but how can that be? Don't look at me, asked the writer of O23. He certainly understood Messiah's conquest to be a credible narrative marker in his story and a past event. Of importance here is the letter with a seal that nobody was able to loosen. The letter is explained to us as the thought of Yahuwah. It descended from on high in heaven and was forcibly shot as an arrow from a bow. Is that a reference to the first horseman of the apocalypse? Might be. Contextually, those who did not walk in the knowledge of Yahuwah were the hands that rushed to read it, but they did not have the power or authority to do so. Dare I say this is a follow-up to the throne room scene in Revelation. A lamb is involved. You're probably familiar with it, but let's read it again anyways. This comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a cipher written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the sephir and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the sephir, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the sephir, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Yehuda, the root of David, has prevailed to open the sephir and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns, which are the seven ruachoth of Elohim, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the sephir out of the right hand of him and sat upon the throne. Only the lamb which was slain was capable of receiving the sephir from the throne of Yahuwah and opening its seal. In O23, that lamb is described as a wheel, a conquering wheel, a wheel which mowed down everyone who attempted to get in the way. The wheel restrained multitudes. It bridged rivers. It uprooted many forests. I had stated that the branches of O1 would be commented upon in O23, and this is it. 
The conquering wheel is the lamb of Revelation chapter 5, but also the vine of Yohanan chapter 15. Confused? Try not to be. Messiah told his disciples the following, I am the vine, ye are the Nazarene. Yohanan or John 15 verse 5. No, Yahushua was not equating himself with the pagan deity Bacchus, despite claims. He was in actual, actuality quoting from 2nd Baruch saying he is divine was fighting words. So follow along. This comes from, this is a little bit longer uh, passage, but it comes from 2nd Baruch chapter 36. And this will tie in with the ode that we've just read. It will match up the ode perfectly. And when I had said these things, I fell asleep there and I saw a vision in the night and lo, a forest of trees planted on the plain and lofty and rugged rocky mountains surrounded it. And that forest occupied much space. So it's, it's an occupying forest. It's a, it's a naughty forest. And lo, over against it arose a vine. And from under it, there went forth a fountain peacefully. Now that fountain came to the forest and was stirred into great waves. And those waves submerged that forest. And suddenly they rooted out the greater part of that forest and overthrew all the mountains which were round about it. And the height of the forest began to be made low, and the top of the mountains was made low, and that fountain prevailed greatly, so that it left nothing of that great forest save one cedar only. And when it had cast it down, and it had destroyed and rooted out the greater part of that forest, so that nothing was left of it, nor could its place be recognized, then that vine began to come with the fountain in peace and great tranquility. And it came to a place which was not far from the cedar. And they brought the cedar which had been cast down to it. And I beheld, and lo, that vine occupied its mouth and spoke and said to the cedar, Are you not the cedar which was left of the forest of wickedness, and by whose means wickedness persisted, and was wrought all those years and goodness never? And you did keep conquering that which was not yours. And to that which was yours, you did never show compassion. And you did keep extending your power over those who were far from you and those who drew, drew might you. You did hold fast in the toils of your wickedness, and you did uplift yourself always as one that could not be rooted out. But now your time has sped and your hour is come. Do also, therefore, depart, O cedar, after the forest which departed before you and become dust with it. And let your ashes be mingled together. And now recline in anguish and rest in torment till your last time come in, which you will come again and be tormented still more. And after these things, I saw the cedar burning and the vine growing itself and all around it and the plain full of unfading flowers. And I indeed awoke and arose. That's from Second Baruch chapters 36 and 37. Baruch is describing a scene wherein the vine and the fountain destroy the forest of the enemy, which just so happens to be exactly how O23 describes the same event, only with a wheel and past tense. In O23, the forest is uprooted. Though the fountain is not here mentioned, we shall see it commented upon in other odes so that the scene before us might be expanded upon. The cedar tree of second Baruch is Hasatan. That's pretty straightforward. By now you should be well aware of the dragon's release from prison at the end of Messiah's thousand-year reign, according to Revelation chapter 20. Well, Brooks says the same thing. 
Did you catch that? The cedar tree is to be held in torment until that time when he will return again, whereas he will ultimately be captured and tormented one final time. What this means for us is that the writer of Odes is placing himself in a timeline whereas Messiah has uprooted the enemy. Likewise, the first capture of Hasatan has already transpired, just not his release. Undeniable evidence of this fact will be presented in further Odes. Fun fact, the field of unfading flowers in 2nd Baruch chapter 37 reminds us of the merits of the righteous. Before Messiah's conquest of Hasatan and his kingdom of darkness, the flowers being described as unfading uh, faded often and were hard to come by. This according to 3rd Baruch. This comes from 3rd Baruch chapter 12. And I was conversing with them. Um, and, uh, excuse me. And as I was conversing with them, behold, angels came bearing baskets full of flowers, and they gave them to Michael. And I asked, so there he is again, Le Mont Saint Michel. And I asked the angel, Adonai, who are these, and what are these? What are the things brought hither from beside them? And he said to me, These are angels who are over the righteous. And the archangel took the baskets and cast them into the vessels. And the angel said to me, These flowers are the merits of the righteous. And I saw other angels bearing baskets which were neither empty nor full. And they began to lam it and did not venture to draw near because they had not the prizes complete. And Michael cried and said, Come hither also, ye angels, bring what ye have brought. And Michael was exceedingly grieved. And the angel who was with me, because they did not fill the vessels. 3rd Baruch chapter 12. While the cedar burns in torment, the vine grows all around it. The uprooted forest is now a plain lathered with unfading flowers. The ki in kingdom terms, the deeds of the resurrected saints are perfect works. All right. Before moving on to the next ode, does anyone have any comments on that? Were you guys able to see the connections um, with ode 23, uh, with the wheel uprooting the forest and destroying everything and with what I read in Second Brute. Did you guys see the connection there? I did. I got everything except for the analogy where it said that it already happened. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, it's all past tense. So that's what I mean by already happened. So we're going to see um, there's, there's three tenses, of course, presented in odes, past, present, and future. Um, all the plea the pleads for people to follow the truth is present tense. Um, mm -hmm. All the conquest is past tense, and the crowning events and those kind of things. And then we will also see a future events. And I don't even want to give that away yet because mm -hmm. it's it's the ending. So I'm not denying it by any measure. I'm just going to, need to take time to really sort through that carefully later. Absolutely, that's uh, totally cool. It's no problem. All right, well, let's just move on then to Ode 4. I told you I was going to jump around a little bit tonight. And, you know, I, I kind of did that because this is a bit of a progression. And, you know, there were certain things I wanted to talk about at certain times. So, Ode 4. No man can pervert your holy place, O my Elohim, nor can he change it and put it in another place. Because he has no power over it. For your sanctuary you designed before you made special places. The ancient ones shall not be perverted by those which are inferior to it. You have given your heart, O Yahuwah, to your believers. Never will you be idle, nor will you be without fruits. For one hour of your faith is more excellent than all days and years. The Odes of Solomon uh, 4, verse 1 through 5. What do we see here? 
Yahuwah has given his heart to the sainthood. But just before that, we read that no man can pervert his holy place. So much going on, isn't there? Let's start with the holy place. No pervert can pollute it because the sanctuary of Yahuwah is in heaven, not on the earth. Only those with special access codes can enter. How does one gain entry? Being given the heart of Yahuwah would be, a, be good for starters. In case you were wondering, that pits the city of New Jerusalem in heaven also. Nope, it hasn't come to the earth yet. The temple in earthly Jerusalem has already been destroyed by this point, so the writer can't be referring to that. If anything, Ode 4 mirrors a passage we read in 2 Baruch, chapter 4. And Yahuwah said unto me, This city shall be delivered up for a time, and the people shall be chastened during a time, and the people shall be chastened during a time, and the world will not be given over to oblivion. Do you think that this is the, the city of which I said, On the palms of my hands have I graven you? This building now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me that which was prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise and showed it to Adam before he sinned. But when he transgressed the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. And after these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. And again, also I showed it to Moshe on Mount Sinai when I showed to him the likeness of tabernacle and all its vessels. And now behold, it is preserved with me as also paradise. Go, therefore, and do as I command you. Second Baruch chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What you have just read should be a tip-off to the likelihood that the city of New Jerusalem, as well as the heavenly temple, both of which were created before the world, were freely accessible to the set-apart saints during Messiah's reign upon the earth. I could turn to a study strictly on, that, on this topic, but for now, you'll have to take my word for it. The defining difference is that it simply hasn't come down below the firmament yet. The reason being is that there are still sinners who would, in, actual, in actuality, pervert it, given the opportunity. And that will never happen until Satan is destroyed for good. Continuing with the Odes. Verse 3. The ancient ones shall not be perverted by those which are inferior to it. You have given your heart, O Yahuwah, to your believers. Never will you be idle, nor will you be without fruits. For one hour of your faith is more excellent than all days and years. I know we already went over this part, but it deserves further consideration. Perhaps I should have said repeating rather than continuing, just to avoid confusion. You see, the very fact that Yahuwah has given his heart to the believers tells us something. The New Testament has finally been enacted. Just not for us, though. Why not for us, you ask? Because we're still flesh and blood. That's why. Last I checked, I haven't been resurrected yet. How about you? Contrarily, at the risk of becoming a broken record, we're working with the notion that the writer has. A better phrase is renewed covenant. That's the terminology actually employed in the Bible. And it's only offered to the houses of uh, Yasharel and Yehuda. Are you really surprised, though? With the, what that ultimately means is if somebody initially claimed to be Goyim during the kickoff of the Millennial Kingdom, then they were only a mortal, yet to be resurrected, and therefore could not live out what Yahuwah promised to the houses of Yasharel and Yehuda in Jeremiah, which reads, uh, so this comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, says Yahuwah, that I will cut a renewed covenant with the house of Yasharel and with the house of Yehuda, not according to the covenant that I cut with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrim, which my covenant they broke. 
although I was a husband unto them, says Yahuwah. But this shall be the covenant that I will cut with the house of Yasharel. After those days, says Yahuwah, I will put my Torah in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no man, every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahuwah, for they shall all know me. From the least of them until the greatest of them, says Yahuwah, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. There it is, verse 33. Yahuwah will put the Torah in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. That's why Ode 4 of Solomon adds, never will you be idle, nor will you be without fruits. That's the same thing as saying the inhabitants of Odes are now sinless. They can no longer do any wrong. They can even rest upon that fact because the Torah has been written on their hearts rather than a table or paper. They are incapable of worthless works because every action produces a perfect fruit of the Ruach HaKodesh, of all 12 varieties too. That's the renewed covenant right there. Explain, do you still tell your neighbor, no Yahuwah? If so, then the renewed covenant has not been cut, not for us at any rate. More than likely, members of the church building down the block don't even know his name or in the very least haven't referred to it in years. The mere fact that we're having this conversation right now proves beyond any doubt that we're still living under the old covenant, as no man will be taught anything by any other man under the renewed. Now, I know what I just said is controversial. Not all of you will agree. That's my point of view. Uh, I do believe that the renewed covenant has been enacted, uh, obviously, for the resurrected, but I think that that's the definition of the renewed covenant, if it's written on our heart. Okay, so continuing. Verse 6 of the Odes of Solomon, chapter 4. For who shall put on your grace and be rejected? Because your seal is known, and your creatures are known to it, and your host possesses it, and the elect archangels are clothed with it. Whoa, 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 hold on. We've just been given a reference to the mark of Yahuwah. No, not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is the opposite of the mark of Yahuwah, though they both include buying and selling. Or not buying and selling, same difference, but for different reasons. The mark of Yahuwah can be found with the prophet Ezekiel, and it reads, Moreover, also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am Yahuwah that sanctify them. A sign is the same, is the same as a mark or a seal. The writer of Ode 4 is declaring that the seal of Yahuwah is known, that his creatures partake in it. If scripture is intended to reference scripture, then it's just another reference to the fourth commandment, but also the Sabbath rest of Messiah's kingdom and goes perfectly along with my theory that nobody was buying or selling anything for a thousand years of human history. That's a whole different discussion. The question I'm constantly asked regarding the Sabbath day is this. In a post-mud flood world and knowing that his story is being hidden from us, how do you know that the original creation week, Sabbath, is being kept? Well, I don't. That's the short of it. I don't. It's the very reason why I desperately started plotting out the lunar-solar Sabbath debate seeking answers. Do the phases of the moon determine our Sabbath rest, or does the sun? Knowing that everything is a lie and his story is being hidden from us, I could no longer trust my forefather's ability to repeatedly count to seven and declare a Sabbath day. To add to that, there were calendar changes under the Roman emperors, particularly Constantine. Lots and lots of calendar changes. Weeks that didn't always add up to seven days. If our forefathers were expected to give a continual seven-day count and roam through a monkey wrench into the very understanding of what constitutes a week, then that tells us that the Sabbath day was skewed and thrown off the train tracks for the bulk of humanity. That's nice and all, but the calendars of Rome are un, um, unapplicable to this conversation. 
none of that concerns me, as the Millennial Kingdom would have course-corrected all of that. Again, it says in the Odes of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7, because your seal is known and your creatures are known by it. The mark of Yahuwah is known to his creatures. What relief. Must have felt good riding on the Shabbat circuit again after experiencing decades and centuries of drought. How long the children of Yasharel had gone without celebrating Sabbath is anybody's best guess. But lest we forget, it was Yahuwah who removed their Sabbaths to begin with. It says so right here in Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Shabbats, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. The question still stands, is the Sabbath day known today? My answer is yes. I guess I changed my answer since a couple paragraphs ago. Like the Odes of Solomon, we have more residue to work with. It's why nearly every, and this is what I believe, it's why nearly every major language across this motionless plane describes Sabbath in the seventh day of their week. The same day, of course, too. I've compiled a list of many of those languages, but not all. You can see for yourself. Now, I understand that I am terrible pronunciation, but because this is a broadcast, I will and not everyone is going to look at this, I will try my best to pronounce these. Uh, they are in alphabetical order. In Arabic, we've got Sabbat, uh, Armenian, Shabbat, Bosnian, Subota, Bulgarian, Sabota, uh, what is this, Cor Corsican, Sabatu, uh, Croatian, Subota, uh, the, the, uh, Czech, Sobata, Georgian, Sabati, Greek, uh, Sabato, Maltese, Isabit, Polish, Sabota, Portuguese, Sabato, Romanian, Sambata, Russian, Subota, Serbian, Subota, Slovak, Sobata, Slovene, Sobata, Somali, Sopti. How many of these do you think were affected by Rome, by the way? Hebrew, Shabbat, Indonesian, Saptu, Italian, Sabato, Latin, Sabatum, Spanish, Sabato, Sudanese, Saptu, and Ukrainian, Subata. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. How in the world is the phenomena possibly explained? It cannot be explained. Are you telling me all the ancient linguists and elite rulers of the earth read their Bibles, properly understood the fourth commandment, and decided to honor it? Sure, let's go with that, or not. When in official history did this Sabbath honoring even happen? Not even Yasharel, um, after they were divorced by Yahuwah and dispersed into the four corners of the earth, would have the political power to overthrow all these languages and insert a Sabbath, which they weren't even honoring to begin with. If I'm not mistaken, Yahuwah said Yasharel would cease her Sabbaths. So why were, they why were they infiltrating every language with a seventh-day Sabbath again? Please show me in official history when that happened. It's like I said, Yahuwah's seal was known to the children of Yasharel during the worldwide kingdom of Messiah, and they honored it. The evidence of languages attests to that fact. In his graciousness, we have been given that residue today. We can know the mark of Yahuwah quickly, because I know somebody will bring this up. The mere fact that the English language says Saturday when the others don't is a strawman argument intended to make the the day of our worship sound pagan. The English language is a post-mud flood deception and indeed a cursed language by design of the New World Order. I could make a whole broadcast on just how the English language is designed as a curse. I'm willing to bet nobody spoke English during the best decades of the Millennial Kingdom except for a minority of barbarians. 
um, if you remember, like two or three months ago, I did that broadcast on the 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 phoenix that rises and the two beasts become their America and Great Britain English speaking. They come out of the, the fire, so it's kind of interesting. Post mud flood. Continuing with Odes of Solomon, chapter four. You have given to us your fellowship, not that you were in need of us, but that we are always in need of you. Shower upon us your gentle rain and open your bountiful springs, which abundantly supply us with milk and honey. For there is no regret with you that you should regret anything which you have promised, since the result was manifest to you. For that which you gave, you gave freely, so that no longer will you draw back and take them again. For all was manifest to you as Elohim and was set in order from the beginning before you. And you, O Yahuwah, have made all. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon, chapter 4. The you being described in the closure of this ode is Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim. The writer has informed us that his fellowship is given. And another thing, milk and honey is a familiar phrase which harkens us back to the land of promise. The writer is saying Yahuwah abundantly supplies them with milk and honey. This should tell us something. Uh, whether the writer current, what, wherever the writer currently finds himself, it can only be described as the geo, geographical landscape of Yahuwah's promise. All right, let's just move on. Oh, 10. Does anyone want to comment on any of that? I really don't want to get into the whole Lunar Sabbath uh, debate. As you guys know, I'm a Seventh-day Sabbath keeper, but I, I feel that the, the, it never made sense to me all the um, how all these languages have Sabbath. It, it I never made sense that Israel would go out and do that. But when the Millennial Kingdom came along, I was like, oh, there it is, right there. It's residue. They were all keeping it. All the languages. So, <clears throat> how do you think we lost it or lost all of this knowledge? Lost what knowledge? Well, I mean, um, you're. You're talking about how they kept all these things. There was a temple during that period. The temple's not there anymore. Um, no, the, we... the temple. The temple was never on Earth. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, mm -hmm. And I quoted from Second uh, Baruch when the temple uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed, and and Yahuwah is talking to Baruch and he's saying, "Do you really think that this is my temple? Like I've got my temple. It's up in heaven." Um, and so. The temple that was destroyed the second time, what we know as Herod's temple, also it's still destroyed. My my um, my understanding or my belief and what I'm working with um, is that New Jerusalem has not and the temple has not come down yet. They are still That's in this. Yeah, um, but I guess what confuses to me, and I'm not saying it's wrong because I'm seriously considering the matter, um, but I'm just thinking like. It, if I'm understanding correctly, then let's say five or six generations ago, we just before that would have been the millennial reign. If that's the yes. case, then how come we have no record of any of this? Why? That's the time. That's the release. Well, he comes and. But did they just erase all the memory from our ancestors? I'm not. And I'm, I'm sincerely yes. asking this. The answer is yes. And the ending of this book will tell you that. Okay. Yes. Cool. All right. Yeah. In, so, in addition to that, um, just well, remember in the it, ode before, the um, all the wars fought against us are from Hasetan. So it's not, we can like, who's doing this against us? Let's remember the, the enemy and whoever's serving him and not serving the father. Yeah. And, and keep in mind that the, um, you know the Rockefellers and these these powerful people who have lots of influence. 
they're all quoted saying similar things like in two generations they can essentially re-educate everyone because they, they can do it, they they can do it in the one children. they can go they can do it in one generation one generation um yeah I'll, well they I, did it with I the guess, globe earth fair I mean, just look at that yeah so all right um and and by the way, you know, when we look back at the 1800s, we can clearly see that that was a huge re-education of it. The whole thing. I mean, they're still re they're still indoctrinated to this day. It's worse than ever. But you can go back and look. You know, the World Fairs, all that stuff. I mean, it was all re-education. Uh, the the American Civil War, all that stuff. All right. Um, well, that that okay. and all the in institutions that were brought up and brought forth to quote educate people. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm just new so, to this, and so I'm just trying to piece it all together. So I'd like to give people this example of the Soviet Union and the uh, the Red Army. And um, I've done some writings on this. I don't have all the notes in front of me, so forgive me if I screw up a few little points here and there historically. But when the Berlin Wall finally came down, 1989, 1990 in there, and psychologists started going in, you know, yay, psychologists, another mud flood, post-mud flood invention. But they started going in to the Soviet Union and the first generation uh, communists were still alive at this point. They were very old, but they um, started noticing that they had something called false memory syndrome. It's what they coined a phrase, false memory syndrome. That the the people who lived through the the Red Army when the uh, when the Jews took over and and everything, that they they had these memories of what really happened, but then they had memories of what the government said happens and they believed what the government told them but they had these memories they couldn't get rid of but it was a really interesting case because you saw in one generation these people were able to be retrained and tweaked it just took it takes one generation that's it all right so uh, hey, let's no. move. yes go ahead Polly. hey really really quick i was uh i lived in russia in 94 during the summer um we went to um in Moscow, we went to one of the little museums there, and our tour guide said, "Here's here's the here's the tour." Da -da 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 -da. She said A, B, C, exactly what was on the wall, and then she said, "That's not what happened. What really happened was this." And she gave us a completely different story than the actual, you know, words on the wall. But she said, "Don't tell anybody. I told you this." But we were uh, that was any yeah. That's some testimony for you. And that's obviously post uh, Berlin Wall. I'm assuming that you went over there, right? Well, it was it was ninety four, so it was Glasnost, Perestroika. Uh, we, yeah, okay. We had, yeah. You know, right in the center of Moscow, not in the center of Moscow, but um, in the city outside the main buildings, they have a World's Fair. They never actually officially had it. Um, somebody had shared that. Um, it's right there. It's on the maps and everything. You can go visit it. They haven't torn it down, and it's still there. And the official narrative is like they built it just like the others. And then this one, they, you know, because of whatever, they never um, did it, um, um, had the fair. And so the other point I want to, same buildings all over the world, and they use them for like, yeah, they all different so-called um, when they were built, you know, 1800s or so, not this older as we know. And this one's an institution for the mental. This one's a hospital. This one's a school. This one's yeah. a... To, you know, and so it's like same building, and these you know big, all these so-called. So it, these big, beautiful buildings all over the world were repurposed for like 
insane people and stuff. It's like it's it's crazy the whole n narrative. Um, we are. I, I'm looking, I'm almost on page 30, which is great because we're only an hour in and I can finish this tonight, guys. So, because um, we can talk at, uh, at the end of some of these points, let's go on ahead because it's going to keep getting better and better. I'm saving the best material for the end, just so you know. We're on 010. All right. Yahuwah has directed my mouth by his word and has opened my heart by his light. And he caused to dwell in me his immortal life and permitted me to proclaim the fruits of his shalom to convert the lives of those who desire to come to him, and to lead those who are captive into freedom. I took courage and became strong and captured the world, and the captivity became mine for the glory of the Most High and of Elohim, my father. All right, pay attention to this. And the goyim, who had been dispersed, were gathered together. But I was not defiled by my love for them, because they had praised me in high places. And the traces of life were set upon their heart. And they walked according to my life and were saved, and they became my people forever and ever. All right, now I'm going to comment on this, but it just actually occurred to me, I didn't put this in the notes, that who did Yahusha say he came for? He came for the lost sheep of Israel, right? Is the narrator of this particular ode Yahusha HaMashiach? Seems so. And I should point out that many of these odes appear to be written by Yahusha, or from his perspective, um, that I did not add in here. Because um, they talk about any number of different subjects. It's, and then I say here, it's not the only one either. We, we again see the entire Holy Family at play. It is the Father who grants immortal life, the Ruach HaKodesh providing the fruit, and the Word who leads the captives free and proclaims Shalom. Shalom, once again we see, has come upon the world. But how so? Well, it appears as though the world has been captured. The war is ended. If there's any questions as to its outcome, the writer tells us the goyim who had been dispersed were gathered together. That's a fulfillment of prophecy right there. I've never seen that happen in history, guys. All right. Yasharel, uh, which had been divorced and scattered, is now plucked from the furthest corners of the earth and regathered, presumably with the house of Yehuda. Once again, we are told of the condition of their hearts. It is filled with the light from above. What that means is they are now capable of walking according to Yahusha's life, which is Torah made flesh, and have therefore found salvation. He ends thusly, they became my people forever and ever. Hallelujah. These are the gathered people. They became my people forever and ever. Are we gathered yet? No, we're not gathered yet. O chapter six, uh, O six. As the wind glides through the harp and the strings speak, so the Ruach of Yahuwah speaks through my members and I speak through his love. For he destroys whatever is alien and everything is of Yahuwah. For thus it was from the beginning and will be until the end, so that nothing shall be contrary and nothing shall rise up against him. Yahuwah has multiplied his knowledge and he was zealous that those things should be known which through his grace have been given to us. And his praise he gave us on the account of his name, our Ruach's praise his Ruach HaKodesh. For there went forth a stream, and it became a river great and broad. Indeed, it carried away everything, and it shattered and brought it to the temple. And the barriers which were built by men were not able to restrain it, nor even the arts of them who habitually restrain water. For it spread over the surface of all the earth, and it filled everything. The Odes of Solomon uh, uh, 6. Curiouser and curiouser, what is this stream of water which became a great river? It says it carried away everything. 
that men were incapable of building anything to restrain it, and that it finally spread over the surface of the entire earth, filling everything. Sounds like victory, if you ask me. Let's see if we can find a, a second witness. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, we read, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my ruach upon your seed, and my blessing upon your offering. Sounds a lot like what we just read. Floods upon dry ground, the Ruach is poured out. Hmm. Perhaps it is simply a metaphor for the dispersion of the Ruach HaKadosh over the whole earth. Let's keep reading. Uh, this comes from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of Yeshua, salvation. The well of water is here related to salvation. Okay, I can dig it. The Ruach HaKadosh and Yahusha are both stand-ins for the invasion of water. With two witnesses, the picture is broadening. Let's seek out another. This one comes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Floodwaters, water well, and now a fountain. The this time, its stated purpose is dealing with the sin and uncleanness of Jerusalem's inhabitants. Perhaps they really are all metaphors for something or other already known to the official narrative, and that no curtain needs pulled. Just to be certain, we should turn over another rock or two. This one comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Yahuwah, the hope of Yasharel, all that forsake you shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken Yahuwah the fountain of living waters. There could be no denying at this time. Yahuwah is the fountain of living waters. Perhaps either uh, people either deny that fountain, having lost their appetite, or thirst for it. Probably has nothing to do with the messianic kingdom then. But wait, there's more. This one comes from Zechariah chapter 14, 7 through 9. But it shall be one day which shall be known to Yahuwah, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be, and Yahuwah shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Yahuwah and his name one. Nailed it. The water which goes out from Jerusalem, presumably the Jerusalem which inhabits heaven, uh, is here connected with King Messiah, exactly as I suspected. Whether or not the water is indeed literal, we are indeed dealing with the Millennial Kingdom in Zechariah. Much like the wheel or the vine, the writer of Ode 6 is once again describing the conquest of Satan's kingdom. People were attempting to build barriers, but to no avail. The river spread over the surface of all the earth and filled everything. The water is living because Sheol is defeated through the physical resurrection of Yasharel's children. Continuing, the Odes of Solomon 6, 11 through 12. Then all the thirsty upon the earth drank, and thirst was relieved and quenched. For from the Most High the drink was given. Yeah, um, I really can't see this in any other light. The entire earth was conquered by water, and that water was King Yahusha. All who drank were relieved and quenched from their thirst. Resurrection talk. It's all in past tense. The writer isn't talking about future generations either. He's reminding his contemporaries perhaps even his children, of a historical event, continuing. Blessed, therefore, are the ministers of that drink who have been entrusted with his water. They have refreshed the parched lips and have aroused the paralyzed will. Even living persons who were about to expire, they 
have held back from death, and limbs which have collapsed they have restored and set up. They gave strength for their coming and light for their eyes. Because everyone recognized them as Yahuwahs and lived by the living water of eternity. Hallelujah. The Oaths of Solomon 6, 13 through 18. Now we learn that living persons were about to expire. Must have been a war raging. They drank from the water, however, and were held back from certain death. That is to direct, uh, directly contrast the others who were brought back from the dead. And need I remind you, the entire scene takes place on the earth. Are you not entertained? Ode 11. Just jump forward here. My heart was pruned and its flower appeared. There's flower again. Then grace sprang up in it and my heart produced fruits for Yahuwah. There's a lot of fruits in this. For the Most High circumcised me by his Ruach HaKodesh. Then he uncovered my inward being towards him and filled me with his love. And he circumcising became my salvation. And I ran in the way in his shalom in the way of truth. Ode 11, 1 through 3. Pause. The writer describes his heart as being pruned so that a flower appeared, and we all know what a flower means. The fact that the fruit of the Ruach HaKodesh were amply produced is a given. As an added clue, his heart was circumcised. That circumcision, we are told, became his salvation. That can mean only one thing. He has endured until the end. But only those who endure until the end are saved, according to Matthew 24, 13. The scene unfolding is undoubtedly a second birth from a fleshly to spiritual body, as we see in John or Johannine chapter 3. Torah is filled with such future promises, which the writer of Odes 11 describes, mainly the desire of Yahuwah Elohim to circumcise the heart of Yasharel. So I have here uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 through 7, both in the Hebrew Masoretic, as seen in the Sefer, and also the Aramaic Targum. Um, I'm going to read from the Aramaic Targum, but if you're reading along, you can see it there as well, uh, the Masoretic. And Yahuwah your Elohim will take away the foolishness of your heart and of your children's heart, for he will abolish evil desire from the world and create good desire, which will give you the Dictate to love Yahuwah, your Elohim, with all your heart and soul, that your lives may flow on forevermore. And the word of Yahuwah, your Elohim, will send these curses upon your enemies who have oppressed you in your capti uh, captivities, and such as have hated and persecuted, persecuted to destroy you. Oh my, now that I'm actually reading this, <laughs> the language here is like exactly how the odes end. It's amazing. Okay. I decided to include the Aramaic Targum because the same passage doesn't actually say Yahuwah will circumcise our hearts. It clarifies the context, though. By taking away the foolishness of Yasharel's heart, Yahuwah will simultaneously abolish evil desire from the world. From that, we can easily deduce if the writer of Odes 11 is claiming that Yahuwah the Most High has circumcised him by the Ruach HaKodesh, which he is, then evil has likewise been abolished in the world. The war is won. Continuing. From the beginning until the end, I received his knowledge, and I was established upon the rock of truth where he had set me. And speaking waters touched my lips from the fountain of Yahuwah generously. And so I drank and became intoxicated from the living water that does not die. And my intoxication did not cause ignorance, but I abandoned vanity and turned toward the Most High, my Elohim, and was enriched by his favors. And I rejected the folly cast upon the earth and stripped it off off and cast it from me, and Yahuwah renewed me with his garments and possessed me by his light. 
Um, I wish I would have highlighted his garments and his light there, but that's okay. Pause. We've already covered passages related to the Fountain of Yahuwah in Odes 6, but I have a few more to share. Evidence has just been given that the writer of Odes 11 is a breatharian. He no longer desires normal drinking water on the earth, as he has already drunk and become intoxicated with the living water that causes one never to die. That means his daily health regime does not consist of earthly water. To see what I mean, consider the following. This comes from Yohanan or John chapter 4. It's a famous context, the woman at the well. Yahusha answered and said unto her, the woman at the well, whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. You see, earthly water only functions as a thirst quencher for so long. After a long, tiresome day, panting in the heat of the day like a dog, nothing tastes better than a cup of ice-cold water to wet the throat. Just know you'll have a hankering for that water again this time tomorrow. There is, however, another sort of water which Yahusha alone offers. Before you tell me you've drunk this water, and your church denomination even insists so, I will have to ask to see your credentials that you have indeed sprung up into everlasting life, because that's what he's speaking of here, the resurrection. We shall see the location of this living water in just a moment. But here's a hint. It is Yahusha who planted the garden of paradise before the creation of the world. You figure the fountain came from there. Next verse. Uh, this comes from Yohanan, chapter 7, 38 through 39. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spoke he of the Ruach, which they uh, that believe on him should receive. The, for the Ruach, HaKodesh, was not yet given, because that Yahusha was not yet glorified. So far, we have seen the entire holy family in heaven at work. It is the Father who circumcises the heart, the Son who offers the water of salvation, and the Ruach HaKodesh through whom we're resurrected into a new life without nakedness, thirst, or hunger. Now we know why the writer of Ode 11 became intoxicated on the water. If it did not cause ignorance, then it is safe to assume he was filled with wisdom. Continuing. Verse 12 of, uh, what ode are we on? Uh, I just lost track. Ode 11. And from above he gave me immortal rest, and I became like the land that blossoms and rejoices in its fruits. And Yahuwah is like the sun upon the face of the land. My eyes were enlightened, and my face received the dew, and my breath was refreshed by the pleasant fragrance of Yahuwah. Okay, pay attention to this. And he took me to his paradise. Hmm. Wherein is the wealth of Yahuwah's pleasure? I beheld blooming and fruit-bearing trees, and self-grown was their crown. The branches were sprouting, and their fruits were shining. From an immortal land were their roots, and a river of gladness was irrigating them and ran about them in the land of eternal life. Then I worshipped Yahuwah because of his magnificence, and I said, Blessed, O Yahuwah, are they who are planted in your land and who have a place in your paradise. I should have highlighted that too. And who grow in the growth of your trees and have passed from darkness into light. Uh, that's past and present tense right there. Behold, all your laborers are fair, they who work good works and turn from wickedness to your pleasantness, for the pungent odor of the trees is changed in your land, and everything becomes a remnant of yourself. Blessed are the workers of your waters and eternal memorials of your faithful servants. 
Indeed, there is much room in your paradise. You should know he's been there. And there is nothing in it which is barren, but everything is filled with fruit. Glory be to you, O Elohim, the delight of paradise forever. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 11. Things are finally beginning to get interesting, as if they weren't already. It says, Yahuwah gave him immortal rest, an obvious allusion to the seventh-day millennial kingdom, and that he took me to paradise. From there, the writer became like the land, abounding in fruit. You figure the fountain was offered from its whereabouts. He then goes on to bless everyone else who is planted and has a place in that land. Are we to believe that the writer was currently writing Ode 11 in Paradise? Possibly. The picture given to us throughout the Odes, however, is that the resurrected inhabitants of the earth have access to Paradise. They can come and go as it pleases their rest schedule. They can choose to work in Paradise or live on the earth. Or perhaps they are simply given assignment in either location. We're not really told. The writer simply informs us that he's been there, that many others have been there, and are in fact there now. All right, this Ode 15. As the sun is the joy of them who seek its daybreak, so is my joy of Yahuwah, because he is my sun, and his rays have lifted me up, and his light has dismissed all darkness from my face. Eyes I have obtained in him and have seen his holy day. Ears I have acquired and have heard his truth. The, uh, the Odes of Solomon 15, 1 through 4. What the writer has quoted just so happens to be one of my favorite scripture passages. It derives from Proverbs and reads, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, Yahuwah has, even, has made even both of them. This comes from Proverbs 20.12. Everybody has eyes and ears, but the hearing ear and the seeing eye can only derive from Yahuwah. One might come to realize we're being lied to about everything and then go about to seek the truth of the matter. But unless our Heavenly Father grants the ability to receive the truth in every sense of the word, he will ultimately land in the darkness every time. There are clearly two separate paradigms going on in the Odes of Solomon, among those with eyes and ears to see and hear, and those who are incapable of comprehending the truth when it speaks and stands directly before them, even filling in their peripheral vision. Continuing, the thought of knowledge I have acquired and have enjoyed delight fully through him. I repudiated the way of error and went towards him and received salvation from him abundantly. And according to his generosity, he gave to me, and according to his excellent beauty, he made me. I put on immortality through his name and took off corruption by his grace. Death has been destroyed before my face, and Sheol has been vanquished by my word. And eternal life has arisen in Yahuwah's land and has been declared to his faithful ones and has been given without limit to all that trust in him. Hallelujah. Those of Solomon. 15. Earlier in the Ode, the writer spoke of obtaining Yahuwah and then seeing his holy day. The seeing was a result of the obtaining. If this was a specific feast day on the menorah, then we are not told. It was simply his holy day, a day which the writer fondly recalls and is to be remembered by all. If I were to take a wild guess, I would suggest the unidentified holy day was Passover. It's just a stab in the dark, though. This is the day, if you recall, that Yahusha entered Sheol and led its captives free into paradise. We uh, saw that, I think it was last week. Contextually, it fits within the Ode, too. The writers, the writers claim to have put on immortality through his name. Presumably, Yahusha, salvation. He was there when death was destroyed. Sheol was vanquished. And Yahuwah's land was open for those who had arisen to eternal life. Think about it long and hard. Take all the time you need. 
the writer is not only identifying himself as having been resurrected from the dead, but to have witnessed the destruction of Sheol. When was the last time that you read literature where anybody made such a claim? It's a first for me too. For the writer of this ode, the truth is a glaring and undeniable reality in which the Most High um, is as bright and warm and real as the sun. Again, anybody with eyes can see the lowercase sun. Even without eyes, they can feel its rays pronounced upon their skin, particularly on a warm day. It would be very difficult for anyone to deny the reality of the very luminary which broils the land around us come summertime. But unless the light of Yahuwah personally removes the darkness from their faith, from their, I'm sorry, from their face, as the writer has claimed of his own, then they are incapable of receiving them. It's a rule that I didn't make up. Now you know why the dead could be raised to immortality and co-rule with Messiah on the earth, and mortal men would choose not to adhere to their words. Ears and eyes are accounted for, but they do them no good. Yahushua even said as much in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Abraham told the rich man in his torment, if mortal men chose not to listen to Moshe, then they would not listen to him, even if he were to rise from the dead and warn them. All right, Ode 17. We are going to make this tonight, guys. We're going to get through this. Ode 17. Then I was crowned by my Elohim, and my crown was living, and I was justified by my Adonai, for my salv salvation is incorruptible. I have been freed from vanities, and I'm not condemned. My chains were cut off by his hands. I received the face and likeness of a new person. Oh, man, I wish I highlighted that, because that's awesome. And I walked in him and was saved. And the thought of truth led me, and I went after it and wandered not. And all who saw me were amazed, and I seemed to them like a stranger. And he who knew and exalted me is the most high in all his perfection. And he glorified me by his kindness and raised my understanding to the height of truth. And from there he gave me the way of his steps, and I opened the doors which were closed, and I shattered the bars of iron, for my own shackles had grown hot and melted before me, and nothing appeared closed to me, because I was the opening of everything. And I went towards all my bound ones in order to loose them, that I might not leave anyone bound or binding. And I gave my knowledge generously and my resurrection through my love. And I sowed my fruits and hearts and transformed them through myself. So you see all the context of the fruit given to people here. It's through the resurrection. Then they received my blessing and lived, and they were gathered to me and were saved, because they became my members, and I was their head. Glory to you, our head, O Adonai Messiah, hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 17. Yahushua may in fact be the writer of this ode. It's certainly written from his perspective, to say the very least. The living crown that is Yahuwah is once again introduced. We are then reminded that his death and resurrection was an act of love, and that those who shared in his resurrection were transformed through his self. When stating that his salvation is incorruptible, we know what he means by that, as death itself gave rise to immortality. And then notice the choice phrasing. They were gathered to me and were saved. Does that ring a bell? It did for me. I found a similar phrase in Second Ezra, and it reads, I gathered you together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. But now what shall I do unto you? I will cast you from my face. 2 Ezra 1.30 the, the context of 2 Ezra chapter 1 is that Yahuwah is vomiting the children of Yasharel out of the land due to their disobedience. Stating that they will be cast out from his face is the complete opposite of as what we read in 0.15 when Yahuwah later dismissed 
all darkness from my face. The picture presently given in Second Ezra is that Yahuwah gathered the chicken of Yashorel as a hen gathering her chickens under her wings. But those, li those little naughty chicks kept running away until eventually the Most High was over it. And now follow along with the words of Messiah in the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, that you kill the prophet, you that kill the prophets, and stone them which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew 23, 27. Same story. It is the word of Yahuwah, who often desired to gather the children of Yeshua under his wings, much as a hen would cluck at her chickens to bring them in. But for the most part, the children of Yeshua wouldn't have it. It would take Yahusha entering Sheol into the very confines of death for his true children to see him and hear him to be gathered until uh, the light of the sun and live. All right, O24. I actually quoted from this a couple weeks ago. The dove, the dove fluttered over the head of our Adonai Messiah because he was her head as she sang over him and her voice was heard. Then the inhabitants were afraid, and the foreigners were disturbed. The Oza Solomon 24. Pause. The dove, as you well know, is the Ruach HaKodesh. Notice how the dove is described as a she, probably because every set-apart soul during the Millennial Kingdom was well aware of the that the Ruach um, bubbling from within them was feminine and the mother of the resurrection. You will be tempted to claim the baptism of Yahusha is being described and not the events surrounding his conquest of the earth. Perhaps so. But, but, but then, why are the inhabitants afraid and the foreigners disturbed? I don't recall that happening when Yohanan dunked them in the Jordan River. Even the foreigners are disturbed. Where do we read that the Egyptians got word of his baptism? We don't. Let's keep reading then for further clues. Continuing. The birds began to fly, and every creeping thing died in its hole. The Odes of Solomon 24.4. Birds. Sounds apocalyptic. That or an Alfred Hitchcock film. I know we didn't get very far, in fact, only one verse, but that's only because I'm reading Shades of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, we read the following. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together into the supper of the great Elohim, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Rather difficult not highlighting the entire passage. <laughs> the mere fact that the inhabitants of the earth are afraid is indeed legit as emotions go. The birds are coming to peck out their eyeballs. Ever see buzzards surrounding the fresh meat of a roadkill? There's, um, there's about to be loads of that. What if you weren't dead yet, but the buzzards were surrounding you? That's a telltale sign that you're about to bite the dust. The Great Supper of Elohim precedes the battle against Messiah, who is seated upon a horse and has already arrived with the armies of heaven. Probably why O24 began with a description of Messiah. The Millennial Kingdom is being ushered in. Think about it. There's a stunning contrast to be made between the dove fluttering above Messiah's head and the birds of heaven, feasting at her command. Let's keep reading. And the chasms were opened and closed, and they were seeking Yahuwah as those who were about to give birth. But he was not given to them for nourishment, because he did not belong to them. O 24, 5-6.
While the birds began to fly, which is the same thing as saying the birds uh, feast upon the flesh of men, the people of the earth seek to destroy Messiah, but he is not delivered to them. Not good for the sinner. Continuing. But the chasms were submerged in the seal of Yahuwah, and they perished in the thought with which they had remained from the beginning. For they were in labor from the beginning, and the end of their travail was life. And all of them who were lacking perished. I'll read that out again. And all of them who were lacking perished, past tense, because they were not able to express the word so that they might remain. And Yahuwah destroyed the devices of all those who had not the truth with them, for they were lacking in wisdom, they who exalted themselves in their mind. So they were rejected because of the truth was not with them. For Yahuwah revealed his way and spread widely his grace, and those who understood it knew his holiness. Hallelujah. The Oz of Solomon 24. What word were the people of the earth not able to speak so that they might live, I wonder? We are not told. Perhaps it was simply too late to cry unto Yahusha for salvation. This isn't the first time that we've seen the secret word of the day, which all the saints, uh, which the saints all receive salvation by. You will specifically recall that the writer of Ode 15 said, Sheol has been vanquished by my word. I'm guessing the word is Yahusha or Yahushua or Yeshua, maybe even Jesus or Jesus. I wouldn't even be surprised if it's simply Adonai. Sure, many people employ those names all the time. But remember what the writer of Ode 15 gave as a qualifier. He had first obtained in him the eyes to see and the ears to hear. The word followed. Everybody has a mouth to speak, but very few are given the sensory necessary to be led by the Father down the narrow road. Another clue, however, as it pertains to Ode 14, is given to us in Revelation when describing the manner in which they were slain. So this uh, scene here in Revelation 19 is a continuation of what we just read with the Feast of the Birds. Okay, Messiah is coming. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were killed with their flesh. Revelation 19, 20-21. The yielded sword, and which comes forth from the mouth of Messiah, is the word of Yahuwah. Somewhat ironic, since Yahusha is the word. The people of the earth were destroyed by the word because they themselves did not have the word. So, try to make sense of that. Ode 22. He who caused me to descend from on high and to ascend from the regions below, and he who gathers what is in the middle and throws them to me. What is in the middle? We're in the middle. Okay, who was gathered? Right? The scattered were gathered. He who scattered my enemies, so he gathers but then scatters. He who scattered my enemies and my adversaries. He who gave me authority over bonds so that I might unbind them. The O's of Solomon 22, 1 through 4. The writer is telling us he has descended from on high, but then descended from the regions below. There is only one person who came down from heaven, but then ascended from Sheol, according to scripture, and that is Yahusha. The Messiah then says his enemies and adversaries were gathered together and then thrown to him in the middle. Where is the middle again, but this motionless plane? Also, when did that happen in the Bible? 
Exactly. So many questions, but by now you should have the answers to them. Continuing. This oh, this is so good right here. <laughs> he he who overthrew by my hands the dragon with seven heads and set me at his roots that I might destroy his seed. The O's of Solomon 22.5. Wait, what? <laughs> he says the dragon with seven heads was overthrown by his hands and by the power of the Most High. Uh, when did that happen in any biblical scenario which wasn't future tense? The only dragon with seven heads that I can find arrives from Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Must be in the past then. The Messiah then says he destroyed the seed of the dragon. We've already seen this scenario play out in 2 Baruch chapters 36 through 37, when the vine pulled up the roots of the forest. Are we to believe that Yahushua destroyed the seed of the serpent? It appears so. Ostracized them well beyond the borders of the kingdom, at the very least. Continuing. You were there and helped me, and in every place your name surrounded me. Uh, o six. Who is he that Yahushua speaks of? Yahuwah, of course. In his own words, Yahushua came only to make his father known. Okay, so when lifting his eyes to heaven, Yahushua prayed to the father and said, this comes from Johanna uh, and John chapter 17, I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them me, and they have guarded your word. Now they have known that, that all things whatsoever you have given me are of you. The very words of Messiah in O22 agree with Yahushua's prayer in the Gospel of Yohanan. Everything given to him is of the Father. That's why Yahushua can say, He, Yahuwah, caused me to descend from on high and to ascend from the regions below. Or, He, Yahuwah, overthrew the dragon by my hands. Continuing. Your right hand destroyed his evil venom, and your hand leveled the way for those who believe in you. The Odes of Solomon 22.7. I don't know why I didn't highlight that whole thing right there. Like I said, it's a first draft. Apologies, but already another pause is in order. Who is the right hand of Yahuwah but his only begotten son, Yahusha? So you can see how the two of them are at play together. While the right hand of the father destroyed the evil venom of the dragon during the war, he also leveled the way for those who believed in him. Same hand or left hand, we are not told. Probably the right, though, as that is his salvation. The right hand is always his salvation. My point being, the way was leveled as a mean of escape. I think we're witnessing a greater exodus. All right, continuing. And it chose them from the graves and separated them from the dead ones. It took dead bones and covered them with flesh, but they were motionless. So. It gave them energy for life. The Odes of Solomon 22, 8 through 10. I don't know about you, but when I hear phrases like dead bones being covered with flesh, I think about the total resurrection of the house of Yasharel. The it here is undoubtedly a reference to the Ruach HaKodesh, and therefore a terrible translation, as the Ruach is a she. I, I say Latin here, uh, I mean Greek, sorry, misprint. But Greek is probably to blame, but we'll let it slide. Point is, the entire heavenly family is working together again. The same scene, what we just read in the Odes of Solomon, can be found in Ezekiel. And it reads, this is a popular passage called the, the Valley of the Dry Bones. 
chapter 37, the hand of Yahuwah was upon me and carried me out in the Ruach Yahuwah and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, son of Adam, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Adonai Yahuwah, you know. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of Yahuwah. Thus says Adonai Yahuwah unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am Yahuwah. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Pro prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of Adam, and say to the wind, thus says Adonai Yahuwah. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of Adam, these bones are the whole house of Yasharel. Once again, we see the hand of Yahuwah involved. Also, only the bones of the house of Yasharel are resurrected. No surprises. It also says, they form an exceeding great army. Why would Yahuwah need an army? Oh, that's right, because Yahushua was coming down from heaven to conquer the earth. You know, the Feast of Birds and all that. Take back what was his from the serpent of old. Best to have a resurrected army then. Continuing the Odes of Solomon. Incorruptible was your way and your face. You have brought your world to corruption, that everything might be resolved and renewed. And the fountain of everything is your rock, and upon it, you have built your kingdom, and it became the dwelling place of the holy ones. Hallelujah. There it is right there. Those of Solomon 22, 7 through 12. If I'm reading this right, then the world is brought to corruption by Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim. The world is brought to cor corruption. Right about the time the dead were resurrected, and the dragon was destroyed, and the birds of the air showed up in order that everything might be resolved and renewed. Another clue as to our place on the timeline. The most important clue of all, though, is the fact that the kingdom of Elohim had been built by the time this ode was written. It even says it became the dwelling place of the holy ones. Ode 20. I am a priest of Yahuwah, and him I serve as a priest. And to him I offer the offering of his thought. For his thought is not like the world, nor like the flesh, nor like them who worship according to the flesh. Offering of Yahuwah is righteousness and purity of heart and lips. Offer your inward being faultlessly, and let not your compassion oppress compassion, and let not yourself oppress a self. You should not purchase a stranger because he is like yourself, nor seek to deceive your neighbor, nor deprive him of the covering of his nakedness. But put on the grace of Yahuwah generously and come to his paradise and make for yourself a garland from his tree. Then put it on your head and be joyful and recline upon his rest. For his glory will go before you and you shall receive of his kindness and of his grace and you shall be anointed in truth with the praise of his holiness. Praise and honor to his name. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 20. 
And now we get to it. The writer of Odes has identified himself as a priest, a person of the Levitical priesthood, more than likely a Meshelzedek priest. His offering is the thought of Yahuwah, which is the same thing as saying the way or the truth of Yahuwah is his offering, and that is Torah, instructions in righteousness. Makes sense. His heart is already circumcised. He is living in the new covenant or the renewed covenant. Therefore, he is incapable of sinning. Living as an embodiment of Torah would be his daily sacrifice then. The priest of Yahuwah then identifies a directive of his ministry by instructing the reader not to live according to the flesh of the world. Uh-oh, <laughs> that means there's still sin in the universe, fleshly desires. But you probably knew that already. There's still sin among the commoners. That means not everyone is a breatharian, apparently. Another logical conclusion to make since we are descendants of those rebellious people. Seeing as how the dragon's impending release and final deception is expected somewhere just over the horizon, the priest of Yahuwah still ministers to those who must decide whether or not to obey Torah on a daily basis. That is why he instructs the commoner not to deceive his neighbor, as lies would play a monumental part in the deception to come. Also, clothing your neighbor is important to Yahuwah, as the righteous have already been clothed by the Ruach HaKodesh. The most stunning part of the priest's dialogue is the fact that he is inviting the reader to come to paradise and make a garland from Yahuwah's tree, presumably the tree of life. I mean, if I were directed to make a garland from any tree that is described as his, then I'd ask directions to that one. We are then instructed to put it on our head, be joyful, and recline upon his rest. More Millennial Kingdom Sabbath talk. If the argument being put forward is that Odes of Solomon is some sort of spiritual metaphor intended for a serpy Hallmark cards, then I am failing to see how these instructions come into it. They seem literal to me. If I were to write to you instructing that you enter paradise and make a garland for your head from the tree of life or from the orchards or whatever, how would you take it? An actual invitation is being put forward, likely to those who inhabit the Millennial Kingdom but are not yet resurrected and must choose the blessing or the curse. How many do you think chose the curse rather than the blessing? The picture being provided for us here is that the resurrected inhabitants of the earth were given open access between paradise and the earth. And it's all through these odes. Just so we're clear, traveling back and forth is exactly what a Meshelzedek priest would do, especially for ministry purposes. It's been happening since the very beginning. I wrote a paper on this. Some of you might recall. I won't go over all the notes now. Um, you know how the angels in heaven are advertised in scriptures having animal heads and appendages, but then the angels who show up to earth look like people with only one set of eyes instead of ten? Those angelic people may in fact be the very members of the ancient order who once ascended to heaven before the deluge. Nailed it. This comes from the writings of Abraham, chapter 98. For this holy order came not by men, nor the will of man, neither by father nor mother, neither by beginning of days, nor end of years, but of Elohim. For it was established in the beginning of the earth by the ancient of days. Wherefore it is called the order of the ancients, and it was delivered unto men from the beginning by the calling of Elohim's own voice according to his own will through the voice of his priesthood, until as many as believed on his name and were faithful until they had obtained. This is what I want you to pay attention to. Behold, these could transcend the veil according to the will of Elohim and commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn in heaven, and many were caught up to be with them. 
For Elohim had sworn unto Enoch and to his seed with an oath by himself that everyone being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, to stand in the presence of Elohim, to do all things according to his will, uh, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of the only begotten of the Father, which was from before the foundation of the world. And men having this faith and coming unto this order of Elohim could be translated and taken up into heaven. The writings of Abraham 98. Before Noah's flood and even afterwards, members of the Meshulzadik order ascended to the heavenly city of New Jerusalem in order that they might continue the priesthood by coming and serving those on the earth, not dead. You can't say earth people are having communion with the dead and therefore breaking Torah as a dead person must be exhumed from Sheol. There are no dead people in heaven. Yahusha, our high priest, and the angels who minister to him, as well as the set apart, are all living. And um, again, that's what I think is happening here. I think that the we're seeing these pictures and these odes where the people writing this, they have access to paradise. They're going up there and they're coming down and they're instructing other people. That's what I think is happening. All right. O 27. I extended my hands and hallowed my Adonai for the expansion of my hands is his sign. And my extension is the upright cross. Hallelujah. The odes of Solomon 27. So an extension of arms. Perhaps this is how brothers and sisters greeted each other in the millennial kingdom. Outstretched arms emanating from both participants, which in turn culminated into the pronunciation of Yahusha and an abrasive hug. Who really knows? In the very least, we are told this sort of bodily expression is labeled Messiah's sign. That really shouldn't surprise anyone, though, as Yahusha asked the same of Kepha. In John chapter 21, we read, uh, he, being Yahusha, said unto him, being Kepha, the third time, Simon, son of Yonah, do you love me? Kepha was grieved because he said unto him the third time, do you love me? And he said unto him, Adonai, you know all things, you know that I love you. Yahusha said unto him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say unto you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither you would. But, you, but when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you and carry you whether you would not. This spoke he, signifying what death he should glorify Elohim. And when he had spoken thus, he said to him, follow me. The sign of Yahusha is the outstretched hands of the cross. I had to throw that ode in there because it kind of comes up a little bit later. Ode 29. We're making really good progress here. Yahuwah is my hope. I shall not be ashamed of him. For according to his praise, he made me. And according to his grace, even so he gave to me. And according to his mercies, he exalted me. And according to his great honor, he lifted me up. And he caused me to ascend from the depths of Sheol. And from the mouth of death, he drew me. And I humbled my enemies. And he justified me by his grace. For I believed in Yahuwah's Messiah and considered that he is Adonai. And he revealed to me his sign. Remember his sign, the cross? And he led me by his light. The Odes of Solomon 29, 1 through 7. Now that we know the sign of Yahusha is the outstretched hands of the cross, we can identify the writer of this particular ode as someone who died before Messiah was crucified and not afterwards. That should be a given as he recounts his rescue from Sheol, and Yahusha only descended into the underworld to reclaim those who had landed there before him. Is the writer Solomon? One can only wonder. It is called Odes of Solomon. He says Messiah revealed to him his sign, which, again, we know to be outstretched arms, and that he believed in that moment that Yahushua was Yahuwah's Messiah. 
Why did he believe? Because he knew the light of the world when he saw it coming into the darkness. Continue. And he gave, this is, this is pretty crazy right here. And he gave me the scepter of his power that I might subdue the devices of the people and humble the power of the mighty. Let me remind you that this is actually not Yahusha speaking here. This is somebody else with Yahusha. Continuing, to make war by his word and to take victory by his power. And Yahuwah overthrew my enemy by his word. And he became like the dust which a breeze carried off. And I gave praise to the Most High because he has magnified his servant and the son of his maidservant. Hallelujah. The Oza Solomon, 29. Rather difficult reading those words while simultaneously not grasping for breath or perhaps an inhaler, if you own one. It gave me chills. Only the good kind, though. The resurrected writer claims Yahusha offered him his scepter as a gesture of co-rulership. He then made war by the word of Yahuwah, perhaps even helping to lead the charge and gain victory over the world by the power of the Father. Must be David, then. The identity of the writer. Or perhaps even Adam, as Yahusha is a son of David, but also of Adam. Who really knows? Adam would know something about being turned to dust. A fitting end for the enemies of their creator, for sure. Yahusha's return with his rod is once again sounding awfully familiar, though. I checked. It's yet another scene from Revelation and reads. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach says unto the, unto the called out assemblies. Revelation 2, 27 through 29. This is the same rod which Moshe parted the Red Sea with, by the way, but that's another entirely. I didn't see anything about Yahusha handing off his scepter. Let's see if we can find other clues. This comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and guard my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Yaakov, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. People will argue this is regarding a son of David and not actually David himself, as in Yahusha. Perhaps that is so. Taking it at face value, however, it does say David will be a king over the land given into Yaakov and a prince forever. Therefore, if we have one contender to be handed Yahusha's scepter, then it's David. Meanwhile, where do we read of a war in his story where Yahusha HaMashiach and the children of Yashorel conquered the world after the resurrection from Sheol, possibly with the assistance of King David, and then overthrew the enemies of Yahuwah into a fine dust, which a breeze then carried off? I would wait while you flip through the pages of your Illuminati written history books, but I know the event will never be highlighted, highlighted within. I do enjoy the sound of crickets, though. I've said it before and I'll say it again. His story is being hidden from us. Satan has done everything in his power to change the times, and nearly everyone hasn't the faintest uh, clue what day or hour we're living in. Ode 30. Got 10 more pages left. We'll do this. Fill yourselves water from the living fountain of Yahuwah because it has been opened for you. And come all you thirsty and take a drink and rest beside the fountain of Yahuwah. So I, I don't know if I commented on this, but the fountain of Yahuwah there is, is it's a physical location, right? 
He's asking you to come rest beside the fountain of Yahuwah. It's not just something bubbling up from within you. Because it is pleasing and sparkling and perpetually refreshing the self. For much sweeter is its water than honey, and the honeycomb of bees is not to be compared with it. Because it flowed from the lips of Yahuwah, and it named from the heart of Yahuwah, and it came boundless and invisible, and unto it was set in the middle, they knew it not. Blessed are they who have drunk from it and have refreshed themselves by it. Hallelujah. The Ozes, the Ozes Solomon 30. Authors note, O30 is an invitation for those who have yet to take a drink of the good stuff. As Messiah's kingdom progressed over its millennia, it appears as though more and more generations of people chose to appease the flesh rather than quench their thirst. It was to their own destruction. Ode 33. But again, grace was swift and dismissed the corrupter and descended upon him to renounce him. And he caused utter destruction before him and corrupted all his work. And he stood on the peak of his summit and cried aloud from one end of the earth to the other. Then he drew to him all those who obeyed him, for he did not appear as the evil one. The Oza Solomon 33, 1 through 4. Are you hearing this? I mean, do I even need to keep spilling it out? The narrative is self-explanatory by this point. You'd have to be born in a cave only to have emerged an hour or so ago, probably still adjusting your eyes to the stinging light, to not know the Antichrist is being described. If Yahusha is Torah made flesh, then he exhibited perfect works. Then the person who caused utter destruction and corrupted his work would be the Antichrist and none other. It says all those who obeyed him were drawn in naturally, as he did not appear as the evil one. That is not to say he didn't commit evil. He just wasn't how one is indoctrinated to think about evil. Lawlessness is evil. Therefore, those who were already lawless were attracted to him. It says he stood on the peak of a summit and cried aloud from one end of the earth to the other. When did that happen in the official narrative? I'm still searching that one out. Are you telling me that early Christians were being persecuted by Rome and yet mutually decided that the embodiment of the evil one had been defeated? The event has been scrubbed. Continuing. However, the perfect virgin stood who was preaching and summoning and saying, oh, guys, this gets really good. <laughs> oh, ye sons of men, return and you, their daughters, come and leave the ways of the corrupter and approach me. And I will enter into you and bring you forth from destruction and make you wise in the ways of truth. That was a Solomon 33, 1 through 4. I'm sorry, 5 through 8. Heresy, you claim. Oh, is it now? The Virgin Mary is a Catholic doctrine, you tell me again. Heresy. <laughs> well, this isn't talking about the Virgin Maryam now, is it? But even if it was, I'm at least in partial agreement that she remained a virgin until her dying day. Protestants love to argue that Yahusha remained a virgin while simultaneously insisting such self-control was below his earthly mother. Clearly, the perfect virgin is the Ruach HaKodesh. How do I know? Because she promises to enter into those who leave the ways of lawlessness, hence the corrupter of the law, and approach her. Miriam, the mother of Yahusha, doesn't enter into anyone. The biggest identifier of all, however, is the fact that the Ruach HaKodesh is wisdom. It says so right there. And here she promises to make you wise in the ways of Torah, which is truth. By the way, what we have just read is yet another scene from the book of Revelation. Past tense, too. Does her speech sound familiar to you? It does to me. Consider the following. 
And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Revelation 18.4. I bet you never imagined another voice from heaven would be the Ruach HaKodesh. But that is often how she is identified in these instances. Like at the baptism of Yahusha, that too was the Ruach HaKodesh. Revelation 18.4 is yet another sighting of the bath coal, which is to say a feminine voice personified by a dove, and it fits like a glove with Ode 33. In Revelation, she pleads that her people come out of the whore of Babylon, whereas in Odes, her sons and daughters are being summoned back to her, the perfect virgin. Continuing her speech, Be not corrupted, nor perish. Obey me and be saved. For I am proclaiming unto you the grace of Elohim, and through me you will be saved and become blessed. I am your judge. Keep in mind, this speech is all past tense. And they will have put me on, and they who have put me on shall not be falsely accused, but they shall possess incorruption in the new world. My elect ones have walked with me, and my ways I will make known to them who seek me, and I will promise them by my name. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 33, 5 through 13. Who was accusing the sons and daughters of Yasharel of sin, but the evil one? If they remained with the whore of Babylon, accusations were most certainly easy to do. Those who fled to the Ruach HaKodesh, however, could only be falsely accused. Did you also notice the New World Quip? I highlighted it in red. Do you remember that her speech had already been delivered to those on the earth at the time when the corruptor had arrived? The promise of the New World was future tense, but with the composition of this ode, it was most likely a fulfilled promise. The, the New World had either been opened up to the set-apart in paradise, or it had arrived upon the earth. Another question you might have is how exactly does someone put on the Ruach HaKodesh? If so, then thanks for asking because I was just getting to it. What if I told you that Adam and Eva wore the Ruach HaKodesh during their first go-around in paradise? You probably don't believe me. Wouldn't it be the first time? It's why, we're <laughs> it's why we're going to read a passage from the Aramaic Targum and then discuss afterwards. This comes from Genesis 3.7. And the eyes of both were enlightened, and they knew that they were naked, divested of the purple robe in which they had been created. And they saw the sight of their shame, and sewed to themselves the leaves of figs, and made them uh, cinchers. The purple robe by which they were created was, uh, with, was the Ruach HaKodesh. You probably still don't believe me. That's fine. I'll probably still manage sleep tonight anyways. Let's play the game of Connect the Dots and read another passage. This one comes uh, from Sirach 15.5. And in the midst of the church, she shall open his mouth and shall fill them with the Ruach of wisdom and understanding and shall clothe him with a robe of glory. There it is. You see, the robe of glory is what Adam and Hava were first created in. It says right here that the Ruach of wisdom who shall clothe the congregation, presumably upon their return. You know how there's pictures of people in heaven vested in robes? Yeah, that's the set-apart Ruach, making sure that nobody is naked. And why showing up for the party without one is a naughty no-no? It means the Ruach HaKodesh is not your mother and ensures the bouncer forcibly sends you back outside with all the other unclean children of the whore. Ode 5. I praise you, O Yahuwah, because I love you. O Most High, forsake me not, for you are my hope. Freely did I receive your grace, may I live by it. My persecutors will come, but let them not see me. 
let a cloud of darkness fall upon their eyes, and let an air of thick darkness obscure them, and let them have no light to see, so that they cannot seize me, that their designs become hardened, so that whatever they have conspired shall return upon their own heads. For they have devised a plan, but it was not for them. They prepared themselves maliciously, but they were found to be impotent. Indeed, my confidence is upon Yahuwah, and I will not fear. And because Yahuwah is my salvation, I will not fear. And he is a woven crown upon my head, and I shall not be shaken. Even if everything should be shaken, I shall stand firm. And though all things visible should perish, I shall not die. Because Yahuwah is with me, and I with him. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 5. The mud flood is, is very nearly upon us. The end of the worldwide kingdom is near. Ode 5 may be one of the earlier odes on the page, but only because the book itself was probably written later in the game. The enemy has not only begun to emerge, it is seen as a visible threat. The context is still kingdom era as a woven crown sits upon his head, but he knows destruction is coming. All visible things will perish. Consider all that the writer is praying for and requesting. He is declaring that he will remain unseen by those who are persecuting him. That means he's not necessarily going anywhere. He will simply not be seen by them. He then asks that a cloud and an air of thick darkness obscure them, that they have no light to see. Everything mentioned speaks of their total ignorance. They will fall into the slippery trap of their own design. The maliciousness will cast the seed of impotence. Their very pursuit will turn into darkness until that darkness becomes their reality. Such is the state of the world today. The writer of Ode 5 may have been uncertain of how everything was going to play out, but he was confident of one thing. Though everything he'd worked for would come to its end, Yahuwah was still with him, and he would not die. My suggestion is, of course, that he had already died. He can't possibly die twice. Ode 42, this is our last one, and then we will discuss all of this. And we made it in good time. It's 11 o'clock. I extended my hands and approached my Adonai, for the expansion of my hands is his sign. And my extension is the upright cross that was lifted up on the way of the righteous one. And I became useless to those who knew me not, because I shall hide myself from those who possess me not. And I will be with those who love me. All my persecutors have died, and they sought me, they who declared against me, because I am living. Ode 42, 1-5. through The words being spoken to us derive from the word, our Adonai Yahusha. And what he has to say is provocative, to say the very least. His persecutors sought him out and declared against him, past tense, because he is living. Again, I will ask, when did that happen in history? Sounds like the rulers of Satan's kingdom on earth had it out for him. They're all, all dead, though. He does speak in future tense, and it's to tell everyone he will hide himself from those who refuse to possess him. Who are these obstinate people if all his enemies are dead? Must be the mortals inhabiting his kingdom, the Goyim. The lives of the immortal Hebrews simply don't do it for them. Still refusing to be crowned with Yahuwah and clothed in the Ruach HaKadosh, eh? their loss. Don't let the phrase, I shall hide myself, escape you either. 
He's not talking about slipping through a hidden passageway behind a bookcase when Kiefer or Johannan aren't looking, or ditching the paparazzi for several hours to go fishing. He's not giving up his crown or his kingdom either. He's simply hiding himself from the uncircumcised goyim. Uh, by uncircumcised, I'm specifically referring to their uncircumcised hearts. They're already living their lives as if a thick darkness were obscuring them. So why not deliver them over to their own desires, which is the old axiom, ignorance is bliss. Continuing, Then I arose and am with them, and will speak by their mouths, for they have, for they have rejected those who persecute them, and I threw over them the yoke of my love. Ode 42-6-7 So um, this is the part where he hides with the set apart. Kind of looks like it. Where are they hiding themselves? We are not told. Nothing about the verbiage hints at the Goyim's destruction either. The children of Elohim have rejected their persecutors, and so they're rising up and leaving the obstinate to their own darkness of mind. They're going to a hiding place where Yahushua can throw his yoke of love upon them. Sounds amazing. <laughs> Point the way. Uh, continuing without any further interruptions. Like the arm of the bridegroom over the bride, so is my yoke over those who know me. And as the bridal chamber is spread out by the bridal pair's home, so is my love by those who believe in me. I was not rejected, although I was considered to be so, and I did not perish, although they thought it of me. Sheol saw me and was shattered, and death ejected me and many with me. I have been vinegar and bitterness to it, and I went down with it as far as its depth. Then the feet and the head it released because it was not able to endure my face. And I made a congregation of living men, I'm sorry, and I made a congregation of living among his dead. And I spoke with them by living lips in order that my word may not be unprofitable. And those who had died ran towards me and they cried out, Son of Elohim, have pity on us and deal with us according to your kindness and bring us out from the bonds of darkness and open for us the door by which we may come out to you, for we perceive that our death does not touch you. May we also be saved with you because you are our Savior. Then I heard their voice and placed their faith in my heart, and I placed my name upon their head because they are free and they are mine. Hallelujah. The Odes of Solomon 42. And, that, and thus concludes the Odes. Yahushua ends the odes on his way out of the public eye, slipping away from the darkness into the perfect hiding place of prayer and virtuous living, like a good Sethite. He then pauses to fondly recall the hour he entered Sheol to rescue those whom he loves. The very moment when the sons of Yashorel came rushing towards him and understood precisely what it meant to call Yahushua the door by which they might enter salvation, they now have his name placed upon their head. Again, we are not told where they are hiding. The location is simply described to us in the language of a bridal chamber. If I had to guess, I would claim the mountain of worship, the old Sephite hangout, which is the same thing as saying Mount Zion, the real Mount Zion, wherever that is. The location of the crowning, but also historical Jerusalem. And that's the thing about the light. It's probably hidden in plain sight. The darkness simply cannot recognize it, nor do they care to. Still, for those of us mortals eagerly hoping to be crowned with Yahuwah and clothed by the Ruach HaKodesh, 
Perhaps he will reveal his whereabouts and soon. All right, guys, that's it. So I'll I'll be willing to take the beating now. I have presented this. Uh, throw your <laughs> throw your hallelujah. Okay, good. That wasn't a tomato in my face or an egg. Awesome. So, what do you guys think? Great stuff. If they're if hallelujah, the, if the odes are true, then I'm all in. But um, and I'm t I'm inclined to believe it. Um, I just like time to pray about it and read the scriptures more. But it's it's a very very uh, um. I don't want to say tempting. It's it's enticing. I don't know if that's the right word. I want to believe it though. Revealing, well, again, well, it's yeah. revealing. Well, like I had started out saying that what this is not going to do. Um, if somebody is listening to this video for the first time right now, they've never been introduced to this idea that the millennial kingdom physically happened. They're going to go like, yeah, okay, I'm not convinced. That's just it's some piece of literature. You're just reading into that. But for those of us who have been looking at the mud flood and the destruction of this one world empire that appeared to be a peaceful, uh, peaceable shalom uh, kingdom on the earth and that, you know, we've been lied to about it and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, th th this right here looks to me like, uh, I don't know if this is great literature or not, the Odes of Solomon. You know, maybe it was just written uh, for educational purposes for like, reading children I, I i don't really know like third grade level i i have no clue um it's hard to but, imagine someone could just make it up well and i i i believe that this is residue that this was purposefully i mean for all i know they wrote thousands of books and they were either destroyed the vatican has them or yahushua picked them up and took them with them i don't know but for whatever reason this was left behind for us to find and again, I cannot read this and find any scenario where it makes sense to me that second century Christians would be writing about the destruction of Satan and Rome, all past tense and you know, all these things. It just doesn't make sense. I can't imagine that you know, anybody who cares about the scriptures so much would um, be so deceitful about them either as to misrepresent them as having happened when they didn't. Great point. You know what I'm looking forward to? And it kind of was described at the end is... We're going to see this in the sky, and it would be no point pointing it out to anybody who doesn't see it also. It, it was like the beginning of the conversation earlier we were talking about. Unless you're seeing with Yahush, through Yahushua's eyes, the Father's will, you're not going to notice his kingdom's right in front of us again, like New Jerusalem. Here's New Jerusalem, guy. Right here. And it will almost be like how... Well, well, we'll see it, that that we've been shared right now. The reason some will not see it, even something that, well, you know what I'm saying. I think this is what's what I look forward to happening, because if we posit that this has happened, it still comes back to Yahushua's return. Mm -hmm. um, if one, for us who believe it already happened, two, for those who believe in more pre-tribulation, that those who think maybe we're already in the tribulation, so they believe in mid. So either way, we're still pointing to his return and what that signifies. And for us, why we're like, uh, many of us, we're like so, I think, um, uh, maybe relieved or find a heartening 
is that this is the time that evil is done with for good once and for all no more evil going forward and I'm that's where i'm hallelujah if this is true i'm just well, that's colonial reign i'm sorry i missed What's that, that? What did you say? If this is all true, then I'm sad I missed the millennial reign. Well, you know, I point this out to people, and that's the biggest um, comment that I've gotten from people. Um, I have been told by others that I am uh, I am killing or murdering their hope. But it, I think about it like this: you, you look at all through history. Um, I would have I would have loved to have been Adam and Eve in paradise. I would have loved to have been their children on the mountain of worship. I would have loved to have, um, you know, been been able to visit um, Noah and Shem in uh, the city of Shalom um, in their school there. I would have loved to have been the generation that came out of Egypt and stood there at Mount Sinai. I would have loved to have been in uh, Elijah's school. I would have loved to, you know, you just go on. I would have loved to have been the generation that saw Yahusha walk. And the 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 thing is, is that I can't decide. Uh, what generation I'm born into. That was for Yahuwah to decide. And for whatever reason, here we are um, at the very end. And, you know, just the thing is, is we still have all of eternity to look forward to. All of eternity. Like everything that's told to us in scripture is just, you know, it's the footnote, right? It's the opening paragraph, it, the first chapter, whatever you want to call it, the, 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 the prelude to all of eternity. And so, so, um, you know, I was talking to Mike before before we all went live, and when you look at official history, the story that Satan is telling, it pales in comparison to his story. It pales in comparison to how amazing, like, I mean, think about this. You look all around the world, and you see, like, all these, like, buildings and all these things destroyed, and they're hiding. It's like, history is pretty badass. It's pretty cool. You know, and um, I don't know. So I'm I'm look, looking forward to eternity. Hmm. Hey, Noel. Yeah. Um, just a quick question on your um, your text on the odes. Did you were you on uh, were you using the uh, the chain the Charlesworth version when you went through, and then or did you use the Gnostic version? So then you just changed out Lord and uh, to Yahuwah, and then you added the highlighting and the uh, bolding. Which one was that that you used for the um, base? I used the. Um, that's a good question. Let me get back to you on that. Um, I I do not believe I used the Gnostic version, but I did. Uh, yes. That, I, yeah, um, I think I, it's I think it's the Charlesworth. Um, like uh, one, two. You use you use plated instead of woven. So um, I um, did. Yeah, go in and change. Some of the to the words I can't stand saying the Lord, but you know, I know man. But what's really yeah. interesting? What's really interesting if you paid attention in here that they would interchange. It would be like the Lord, and then talking about Messiah, and so they weren't referring to the Lord as Messiah. It was clearly Yahuwah and his, you know, anointed one or whatever. Um, yeah, I did. I did notice that a lot. I went through odes. Um, I think you and I were talking about it maybe a month ago, and. Um, started going through it then again because i'd read it as a kid and uh, that was one of the first things that hit me was the, the naming like well what, okay if it's not this guy then who is the quote-unquote lord most high and merciful well is that the same guy over here so it was kind of confusing thank you so, 
so if I were to go back and write a second draft on this, one of the things I would really focus on is uh, their their heavy reliance upon the power of the Most High, which is something that is uh, not real common with Christian literature, in my opinion. Um, another yeah, thing besides like John and Jeremiah, Isaiah, maybe Daniel, Ezekiel. Well, I'm not talking about canon, but I mean post-canon literature. It's not something that I see a lot of. Right, right, right. They're 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 trying to fill in the blanks on some stuff and not really going back to the the main gist of what we would find that you know our core theology. You know, who is everything and all and all and and uh, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I. I, I mean, I can't, I'm, at this point, you know, I'm with a lot of others, like, in my heart, it's not canon yet, but I don't see anything wrong with it, like First Enoch, you know, I'm like, well, I don't see anything wrong with it at all, you know, show me something that I, that, that is unscriptural about Odes of, Odes of Solomon, so it, you know, it's one of, as Rob Skiba says, an extra-biblical synchronous text in my heart right now, so. So something to for everyone to think about, and I ended it with this picture of you know this big old like hugging fest, um, which is a, a, a painting that I assume depicts Mount Zion. In Second Ezra, he said he saw Mount Zion, and he saw all the saints beyond what could be numbered being crowned on Zion. Now there is a Mount Zion on the earth. Um, and we, in the modern state of Israel, uh, you know, that's, that's where the temple was, Mount Zion. And if everyone can picture that in their heads, it would be hard for me. I'm just throwing this out there, and we've had this discussion before. It would be really hard for me to paint a picture that if I saw Mount Zion covered with people, that I would say, beyond number. Because I could number those people theoretically, I could get it ca uh, count of their heads, and you know, say there were uh, you know ten thousand people standing there on Mount. Zion. That's about all I could fit. Ten, fifteen, you know, ten, maybe fifty thousand or something like that. But this picture that well beyond number Mount Zion, that's you know one of those things that you know makes me wonder. And a lot of our discussions we have is uh, is Mount Zion really elsewhere, and it's not where they say it is um, today. So something to think about. Something else that makes this really believable is that a friend of mine sent me uh, a couple links recently showing that um, Josephus uh, Tacitus and um, a quote unquote um, Apollos the prophet all testify that there were um, that dead were raised and chariots were seen in the sky um, uh, as an army in conflict. Uh, sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem. So if that's if that's the case, then that's more witnesses to the fact that that this may have already happened. Yeah, I agree. That's what actually got me interested in looking at this when my friend showed me that. I was like, oh, okay, there's witnesses, historical witnesses that uh, saying resurrection already happened and the armies of judgment already happened. If that's the case, then shouldn't the millennial reign have also happened? Right. Now, when I started looking into this, um, if you were to talk to me a year ago, uh, I, I, I wrote an article that... <laughs> 
is <laughs> it's still probably one of my most read articles now. It's like taking a lot of heat. And uh, I talked about that very thing about the armies in heaven that came down in 66 to 70 AD and where Josephus talks about seeing them and that kind of stuff. Uh, I do believe that that was it. Yehushin the crowd, uh, that he was coming down to judge um, just as, you know, fulfillment of prophecy. At that time, I, you know, I, I kind of started my, the rabbit trail or the breadcrumbs there. And I, my assumption was that that was the ushering in um, of the millennial kingdom, which still didn't totally make sense to me. Um, but I've, as I look at more and more evidence, um, I'm, and I need to do a video again where I, I'm slow at doing it because I'm still accumulating information. But it seems to me from everything that I'm able to gather in other texts, including First Enoch, that the the millennial kingdom was not ushered in until about five to seven hundred years um, after the ascension of Messiah, after his resurrection, and uh, basically one week, one prophetic week. And what that does is is that's the age that Enoch talks about as the age of apostasy. That after Yahusha ascends, after the man ascends and the temple is destroyed, there follows an, a, an entire week of apostasy. And, um, and so that is where you get, you know, the Roman Empire, a lot of writings, the church fathers, the Roman Catholic Church, all that stuff. And at some point... We the Roman Empire collapsed. I mean, we know this by the official, you know, narrative, and they'll they'll say, you know, the Eastern and the Western wing and all this kind of stuff. But at some point, Rome fell. I believe Yahusha came in, ushered in his kingdom. Millennial reign was here, and what we're actually seeing with the um, in the last two hundred years with Rome and all that stuff that it's actually. You know, I read this in of several videos ago about the the phoenix coming out of the ashes and the two headed beast, and that it is a it is the beast that once was, but then was not, and then has returned. And um, it's what Satan has been doing is cleverly trying the best he can to make it look like there was a seamless history, right? Like nothing happened. That Rome has always been here, never went away. And then, of course, I'm here to say, no, Rome was destroyed. The beast was thrown in the lake of fire, and you know this uh this imposter uh came back so anybody else there's a lot of silent people in here tonight i thought maybe more more talkative people well, maybe maybe, all. maybe you guys are trying to spare me <laughs> go ahead well, Paul. I, well I wanna... was he thrown yeah go on okay. please no go ahead man both of you go. No, on. I was gonna say that that's where some like I was like, okay, was he thrown in a pit for the time to this moment? Because I don't think once you're thrown in the lake of fire that you get, you know, that's the the one we're looking forward to seeing the finishing job. Or so it's like interesting when we look back, we got to up, got to revise that view again with this newer, with this clearer understanding or this new um, uh, revealing revelation and. What's what's so <laughs> I, I I chuckle I laugh. What's great about it is it's what we've been um, um, realizing is the wisdom being shared and the humbleness that like how this is being um, revealed to us and this truth as it comes and what it's showing us. Again, we are we're close. 
is the feeling. The the days are the days are numbered, as they say. Yeah, and just to clarify, we so I connected what we saw with um, um, second Baruch, and uh, with connecting with. Uh, so I connected the odes with second Baruch, which also connects to Revelation twenty, in which uh, this says that the wheel it describes the Messiah as a wheel coming down to just pulverize everything in its way, just just goes over rivers and anything you stand in the wheel's way was pulverized. Remember, this was the letter that was sealed that everyone rushed after but nobody had the authority to open it and um i connected that with second baruch when the wheel uprooted all the forest and it says that the vine did the same thing but at the end of it satan was the last standing cedar like everything else was defeated and you know yahushua is having to face off with satan it's just the two of them and he's like okay i'm throwing you in the lake of fire and um and you're gonna be tormented and then you're going to be released and then you're going to be thrown back in there again. So you guys can imagine like if he was, if he's being tormented for a thousand years, what does that do to a man? Right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not laughing like at this predicament, but I mean, it's just, it's like, he would come out pissed. I mean, like really angry. Like I'm coming out like, and you can see why he's angry. He knows his time is short and, you know, going about deceiving the whole world. So um, you know. it's, Yeah. Yeah, just want to clarify, are, are, are you stating that he was in the Lake of Fire or in Tartarus? I don't know. But that's a good question. Um, it says he's thrown in the Lake of Fire at um, the end of Revelation, doesn't it? And yeah. then before that, he's in prison. It just says that in Second Baruch that he would be tortured um, and that it, it was like on fire. So, you know, that's maybe cool. it's just... So yeah, maybe right. it's just tomato, tomato. I don't know. I mean, he's still tortured, imprisoned. Um, you know, yeah, now I, I would presume that is Tartarus, uh, because we read that second death, you know, every, even death is thrown in there, so I don't think he's coming back from that one. Yeah, that makes sense. So, that's thank you for that clarification, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, this is where, again, if we maybe from where I sit, I can, um, um, see this clearer because of him. I'm like, this is rejoice. This is why you hear this shared with us. Rejoice. Yeah. 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 Having the additional information is, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't affect me negatively. It doesn't give me less hope. It gives, it just, uh, Gives me better insight to see what the lies that uh, are all around us, and to confirm that we must live, live as we know we should live. You know, walk in the fruits of the spirit, uh, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Imagine the scenario of Yahusha actually walking the earth. All right, now we've talked in past weeks. Uh, and have asked the question, did Yahushua come for one year? Did he come for three years? Was he the Passover lamb that came for one year? Was he the um, the heifer that came for three years? Hmm. And and so, you know, one year, and you guys know that my kind of point of view at this time, and I admitted that I haven't really looked into this a lot, but the, the, the Gospels come across to me like he came, he went, you know, gone within a year. 
I can see the three-year perspective. However, imagine if you're living on the earth and uh, you hear that the Messiah came, he died, he resurrected. And you're like, wait, what? What? Like, and they're like, yeah, he was here for three years. You didn't like, you didn't hear about this? You're like, no, like, you know, <laughs> I was in a coma or something. I don't know. But like, imagine the scenario where you're like, man, I missed out on seeing the Messiah. I missed it. And you were here, but you missed it, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's one of those scenarios where, again, like, yeah, I would love to be able to live through the millennial reign. Um, and it, it's, it's a bit of a bummer in that sense. I get really excited, though, when it, this is almost like flat earth for me because uh, it's, it's very much like flat earth. It's, it's a little bit harder to quantify because I can go out and I could show that, you know, uh, you know, the horizon is level and, you know, water is flat and so on and so forth. I could, I could, you know, show obvious examples as to why the earth is flat, but the flat earth gets me really excited, like really excited because God's word is true or Yah's word is true. Well, this, it does the same thing for me when I could look back and I could, I, I know for a fact that there was a worldwide mud flood of it. I, that, I know that. And I know that there was the, these, you know, this empire beforehand. And so when you could show me, when you, when someone could demonstrate that this was the prophesied kingdom and it came, that gets me really excited. Again, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's bittersweet, right? Like it's, um, you know, parting is such sweet sorrow. Um, I wish I could have lived through it, but I get really excited knowing that it happened and that he fulfilled his promises, uh, that he fulfilled what he said he would in 70 AD. That gets me really excited. Well, well, it, it kind of gives me where token copied again, this where some of the army he fought was the raised dead remember they came and um fought oh, with right. the, in the last man so yeah, we they see did it major again destruction too mm -hmm. yeah the biggest difference between flat earth and this is that i can go through the scriptures and objectively analyze every detail about what the scriptures say about the shape of the earth find they're totally consistent and give a very detailed description that I can easily verify shows that there was a dome, it was inscribed into ice, and that there's, um, et cetera, et cetera. While it's a lot harder to conclusively put the information about this timeline and missing history together in a way that I can easily lay it out and say factually this is 100% verifiable. It's, That's correct. That's correct. I cannot... I cannot in an hour seminar, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in the jacuzzi and there was like a 12 year old kid came in there and I, I administered to that kid, the flat earth. He was fascinated. He was a Bible believer. He was like, he was like, he really impressed me. Cause he's like scripture verse. He kept saying that scripture verse. He wanted me to show him, you know, he didn't want it. He's like, I'm not taking you. I want to see it in the Bible. And I was able to lay out the entire creation week. It, it, just so everyone knows, a jacuzzi is an amazing place to, to describe the creation week. It's, an, it's a perfect example, right? And I was able to do that. You can't do this with this. Um, it, you can't just sit down with someone over an hour and say, so, um, you know, the millennial rain came and went and there's this much, like, it, it's a long process. Right. It's I really think the great, the great thing about it, once again, goes to the clearer part of, <laughs> this is Yahushua again, showing us the way in the truth. So he goes, Okay, this one you can't necessarily verify, but what do you what do you what do you believe? What do you know in your heart? And you're like, oh, this is like a test. All right, what am I gonna? You see where I'm getting at here? Yeah, this is well, kind of the next level. Again, guys, this isn't about. This is another revealing. Oh, let me finish. I just remember. 
So what's interesting is this is who the difference is, hey, guys, we're not asking you whether you believe it or not. Can you look? Can you look with an open heart and open mind? That's what's more important. And then we'll find out. We'll see. What's interesting is those who haven't even given it the 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 uh, 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 an open mind to look. They're like, nah. And I'm like, guys, that's the same attitude as we said for this, that, or the other previously. You're adopting the wrong um, spirit, actually. And this is like I said. This is you. Are you with Yahusha? Because he would have a look it's being revealed will you at least look at it and this is what i think is so um <laughs> next level guys whether it's the truth or not which we're seeing it is um but we're also being um what we're being re revealing is at the same time we're like do 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 dad's will right where be more righteous like yahusha and this is what's um, beautiful. It's bringing us in a closer relationship with Yahuwah's family. And that's what's the beautiful thing of this next step. Good. So, Alex, one thing I wanted to uh, say is that a person in my position, because I am presenting this information, putting it out there and researching this, and this is... This is something that's actually really starting to take hold with a lot of people. But something I'm able to see from my position is a lot of people, and you guys don't see this, but a lot of people are writing me. They've been doing it for months now. And they're like, uh, you know, th there's just some, you know, Joe in, in Arkansas or Bob in Canada or, or just, you know, whatever, just people all over the world. And they're like, uh, I've been researching this mudfa thing. I'm obsessed about it. And I came to the conclusion on my own that the millennial kingdom happened and then i just and that led me to your work all right so what what i'm finding from my end is that people all over a lot of people are starting to wake up to this come to this realization then they're starting to search this out is there anybody else out there who believes this and they're like oh this guy noel he's talking about it um and and i'm not the only one there's other people as well out there talking about it in the torah community and so on um so that, that's just a confirmation to me that Yah really is waking people up. And it's not an easy conversation to have with people. It's one of those things. So you had, you had brought up Flat Earth and how easy it is to point that out to people and demonstrate. Well, this is the mud flood is basically uh, Flat Earth 2.0. It, it's not something that it's, I would introduce to necessarily people um, who weren't signing on to the flat earth and this particularly i mean if you think about this the flat earth is a precursor to understanding the millennial kingdom because if i were to tell you that yahusha and the saints are still on the earth somewhere they're hidden from us they have you know cast darkness around all the sinners um you know anybody who believed in globe earth would look at me and go okay where is that because i got google maps why don't you point it out to me we know that the realm is much larger than they're advertising way larger especially in the southern hemisphere though i'm you know i'm looking toward to to uh true north to the location of where they're at um you see how that so it just it doesn't it doesn't this isn't this is something that it's it's more deep level like you have to pass through certain okay you, you sign on to the flat earth and then you look at the mud flood. Okay, wow, what's going on with this? And then you kind of delve into it next. It's it's a progressive, um, uh, right? You know. And so, what's like next? What's what's next? And what we're feeling it, and what we've been showing, if we 
um, just take a moment to listen to remind remember the conversation is his family, us getting to know his family. I'm like, okay, guys, that is like, again, personal relationship. He's showing us this. And I'm like, that is really close. It's like bringing it really close. And I'm like, mm, the garden is like paradise. This is what you were talking about next in your writing. And you said you're going to do a, a show on this um, soon, I think, um, or at least a talk on this. And maybe you'll open up to this is where the saints are going back and forth. And it's almost like I've had this. I've tried to go up so many times in this lifetime. Get me on up. Get me on out. Yeah, now this is where I want to bring it to. We're moving on up. We're moving on up. The um, the veg uh, the Garden of Eden part was, for me, the part that was um, really testing. Um, like, hey, I, hard to 100% verify all this difficult, but this is how I got to test whether my pursuit is righteousness or what what is essentially um where am i with my messiah and it, i totally agree i would never introduce this subject to someone who doesn't admit um, won't submit to flat earth because i've already seen how that causes so much um problems already and this is even harder to verify than that so it really comes yeah. down to how a person how open the person is um to receiving um the the slight nudges uh, effectively yeah so it's it starts yeah. with it, which makes it even more simply simple we don't have to introduce this first what was the first thing and it's like as much as he tried to hide Yahuwah, right as much as he wanted to just besmirch yahusha get us to forget their names and even if doubt they even existed what is being revealed to us next? Let me see if I can get this out. Is, is this personal relationship that is right here that is like, oh, guys, he, it's, he, it couldn't be hidden anymore. And it's, 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 it's in our face. Uh, it's right here. And this is what I'm, you know, the words are now kind of slipping from me. But this is what's being revealed is this um relationship this connection we have um what is hmm uh let somebody else speak maybe well no, what, what you're saying is one thing i was reading all throughout the odes and keep in mind as i had mentioned earlier that i i picked out a dozen odes or so and i decided i'm going to write on these i'm going to you know express these there there are 42 in all and they all tell different aspects of what was going on and one thing that is very true in them is it's clearly relational like messiah came in these odes to have a relationship with people and the one thing that i said that if i had written a second or third draft if i had time uh to do that i would have really stressed this issue of grace it really it really Thank you. uh it really stuck to me because I'm a person who uh, I beat myself down really hard. I, I'm a person who I feel like I am not worthy. Um, I, I just hope to get into the door in New Jerusalem. You know, I'll be like, on my I'll be on my face. Like, I do not consider myself worthy. Right. I, I, I tear myself down all the time. And I just ask Yah to like, to think of me as just, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you get, right. Guys, so, so again, so, yes, I do. So this is what I, I, you found my words again. It was to remember this relationship we have that is right here for all of us. And that's what was kind of hidden from us. And 
Yeah, you're, well, you're touching right on it. It's really, really personal. So what they keep saying all throughout the odes is uh, these people who are identifying themselves as priests of Yahuwah who enter paradise and are resurrected and were there in Sheol when Yahushua came and uh, revived them, they're saying, "We look, guys, we're giving you grace. Just embrace the grace. That's all we ask. We're just given this. Like, we know you're sinners. We know you're not perfect. We have circumcised hearts. You don't. But we just embrace this grace. And that was really encouraging to me to, um, to you okay. know, whenever I, whenever I stumble. This grace, I this grace, you know how we realize this wisdom. So this grace is one of, is this probably one of the father's, um, what, um, well, it's, we know it's coming from the father. It's his grace. and. Again, if we got to remind people of anything, not the flat earth, not even the millennial kingdom, it's hey, there's a Jesus, Yahushua wants to have a relationship with you. That's what we just have to start with people. We start right at the heart, right there, because yeah. it, if they, they'll doubt anything else, but it's like, yeah, you guys can doubt this, but the one thing that I don't want you to doubt is that your Messiah, your creator, um, wants a relationship with you. And people go, what, really? Yeah, did you remember it? He's right here. So that's where we got to bring it to. Yeah, it shows, um, with it people shows, him, shows and proves his love. I mean, this is what it's what it's stating. Is, is you can better understand his love, having this grace and understanding of, of mankind and our sinfulness. That's all true. But I also find that these are huge testimonies to the state of the heart. Like... But the vast majority of quote-unquote self-proclaiming Christians will absolutely just reject any of these subjects, no matter how much scripture I put forth. Like Flat Earth, I lost friends back and forth constantly over um, that stuff. And all I was doing was sharing scriptures. Um, yep. But so it's it, it is um, kind of not it's not it's not the focus of salvation by any measure. But it is a huge um, testimony or testament to the state of someone's faith by if they really are living and really believe what they say believe or not. And so I find it is useful for getting people to analyze themselves about where they are at in their relationship. Now, you had touched on a really good point there. And yeah, it, 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 Flat Earth is not a test of someone's faith. I want to make that clear to everyone listening that I do not get misquoted here. However, in 2015, when the flat motionless plane movement came along and everybody started waking up to this and getting really excited. I mean, it was it was a joyous time in my life. I was so like overjoyed realizing that the scriptures were literally true and that we were on a motionless plane and there was a solid firmament over us. I remember I started telling people and they were just like, that brought them no joy. It brought them uh, grief, a horror, you know, that like everything that they've been taught is wrong. You know, they couldn't accept it. And what I, what I saw then, and I, if I were to refer back to my old writings from 2016, 2017, if I could dig those up, they're probably still on the website, and show some of this stuff, I, I described it then like there was this, uh, it was like a honeymoon period. That we were, like there was this honeymoon with Yahuwah where he was revealing us to this, this truth, and we didn't know what was coming. 
we knew something was coming. We were all talking about it. I mean, we, you know, we all have our, you know, we knew about like the, the FEMA camps and everything. And we, we knew, you know, that the, the depopulation, we knew something was coming, but what it, it's almost like a, uh, it was like a gauging test where Yahuwah, the most high was basically giving this truth to his sheep and saying, look, embrace this, accept, you know, I'm going to show this to you because you need to know this information. Something's coming. And, most pastors, uh, churches rejected it. And then what happened when, uh, you know, 2020 rolled along, I won't say it, but you guys know what I'm talking about. These churches closed their doors. They didn't put their faith in Yahuwah. They didn't have a faith in Yahuwah. They had faith in man. They had faith in science. They had faith in the CDC. Nobody was lying to them. And so you, 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 you do see a connection. Uh, and again, I don't want to put down all the people of faith out there who still believe we live on a spinning, wobbling globe. But you you clearly see that connection. Uh, there is a connection between people who couldn't embrace it and now embrace the lie. And um, and so what happens is, is Yahuwah is revealing these things to us, the flat earth, Torah, and I and I, I believe the mud flood. The mud flood is his uh, revelation. I have... I have uh, no, I, I can't think of it any other way. And so I have to look at scripture and going, I have to ask myself, what happens? Where can we find this in scripture? And I really do believe, and I really do believe it's revealed to us for those who have a humble heart who could say, look, I was wrong again about my doctrine. I was wrong about my theology. And, you know, and that was my presentation, of course, that it did happen. I think it's revealed to us. So. Mm-hmm. My spirit feels inclined to agree. Now, I wouldn't say that is a valid statement of authority, but hearing it and seeing it, it's just something seems right about it. And so it, it leads me to want to study it out more just because it, it seems scripturally to fit and it seems it makes sense. It just makes sense based off of what the world's already like. I don't know. So, so, um, one of the the things, um, one of the studies I'll be pushing out. Now, I hope you guys can, anybody listening can hopefully appreciate that. So what I've tried not to do is, you know, the mud flood is, is the next big thing. And it's really growing rapidly. And what I start noticing is that uh, when people are talking about mud floods, Tartaria, they kind of all have videos talking about the same thing. Okay, we're going to talk about the World Fairs. We're going to talk about, you know, San Francisco. We're going to talk about, you know, this and that, you know. And... Um, and what I've tried to do is instead of just repeating all those things that are being spoken about that people already know about, is I'm trying to present research to the mud flood community and say, look, okay, that is all true, but here's what scripture, you know, this is a study on scripture. This is what it shows. Um, and one thing I really want to do is make present a study on the timing of New Jerusalem, that we are, st- we still have New Jerusalem to look forward to. I do believe that those uh, who were visiting Paradise also had access to New Jerusalem, even though the- I did not see it spoken of in the um, in the odes. We did see the temple in heaven spoken about, so that was interesting. And I connect the temple with New Jerusalem. Um, but the thing is, is, is what the big debate where people say, Noel, you're wrong on this. You're wrong because when the millennial kingdom comes, New Jerusalem comes down. I have never felt that way. And for me, when I look at the millennial kingdom, I see prophecies in Isaiah and others that people will still die. There will still be sinners on the earth. There will be people dying. But when 
the heaven and earth is done it, away with and new right. Jerusalem comes down, there will be no more death. Death is done away with. And so it's for new me, heaven, that, new earth also. Yeah. That means all the sinners are gone. They're wiped out. Like, like they're the, think about this. Like, this is how long suffering Yahuwah is. He's like, okay, I'm going to send my son down to bring the lost sheep of Israel in. Oh, they killed him. They killed my son. All right. He resurrects out of Sheol. He comes and he's like, okay, I'm going to send him back down with a rod of iron and he's going to rule the people. Oh, they still rejected him. And, <laughs> and that was brought to destruction. Okay. All right. All right. Now we've got like this, like 200 years or whatever of, of, of Satan lying to us. And he's still being gracious to us and loving us and saying, look, if you still turn to me, you can be saved right and um i think we're the generation that is is true of what he said to thomas blessed are those who did not see me and still believe right during the millennial kingdom they would have seen him and not believed right so blessed are those that do not do not see him and still believe but once new jerusalem comes down uh there's a reason i pointed out that he said that my temple cannot be perverted right you can't have sinners uh, surrounding that thing because they're going to pervert it and once new jerusalem comes down there's no more death because all the wicked have been wiped out and it's only the resurrected at this point so i mean it says you know the, the, the others will be cast out into the darkness but um anyways so i want to do a study on that to show that uh new jerusalem and the millennial kingdom uh it says a thousand years for a reason right because new jerusalem is an eternity this is a thousand years i want to do a study on that to make that case solid um, and there's still a few things I really want to uh, dig into, but I think the case is getting stronger and stronger the more I look into this. You know, like six months ago when I started talking about this or whatever, I was silent on it for like an entire year. I didn't want to bring it up. I was really nervous about it. I'm like, people can call me a heretic. But when I, I started talking about it and putting out there's a hypothesis and the, it hasn't crumbled away, the more I look into this. And I have unanswered questions, and I'm like, well, I need to answer this. You know, I had the question of, like, why are we seeing, if the Millennial Kingdom is here, why do we see so much sin in the Millennial Kingdom? Why do we see perverted art? Why do we see all that, you know? And I did a study on that, and I showed how that happened and how, you know, the enemy was actually in the earth, and they corrupted people. Um, and so the more I look at this, I just, it becomes more of a rock-solid case. So, Noel, could you go more into what you just said? Because I, I have no trouble accepting what you said tonight, but I'm having trouble tying it, tying it all together and how we got from there to here. Okay, so there was a study I did um, about – you might have been there for that, or maybe you missed that week. It was like two months ago. It was called Millennial Kingdom Plus Mud Flood and the Wastelands of the Seraphim. I think that's what it was called. I think that and, was right before I got here. Okay. and. So one of the things that really bothered me about, so I had mentioned when we started out the study tonight that one of the reasons that propelled me to want to go live in Europe, and we were there for you know quite some time, and obviously the current world situation put an end to that, um, is I really wanted to study enlightenment thinking and see the build. I knew nothing about the mud flood at that time, and I wanted to study the buildings there and see how uh, the occult started coming out into the open during the Enlightenment. Lo and behold, I didn't realize that I was actually studying how the occult came out into the Millennial Kingdom. Um, I was just looking at it from a different perspective. The Enlightenment is his kingdom. So Yeah, that article you wrote about that one building, um, 
where was it in northern France or somewhere? Yeah, it, it was just I think just south of Normandy. It was uh, the the double helix DNA uh, staircase that yeah. was, but the the whole building was built to look like New Jerusalem and um, represent the four corners. There's a really bizarre um, uh, building. But what I was what I was going to say was. One of the things that really bothered me is because I used to uh, love art back in the day, and there's in the Renaissance the the the, the Renaissance perfected the bodily art form. You think of like Michelangelo's David; they were able to give the human body. Uh, this is according to the official narrative. They were able to give the human body perfect precision and angles and everything and as if you look if you look into the mud flood research you'll find like where did they have the technology for this stuff and you know like the, the stone statues and, and stuff like that right that that's a whole discussion in and of itself but what happened next is according to the official narrative the the baroque art the baroque art was the next generation of painters and what they did is they took the perfection of the human body but they started bringing in emotion that the original um renaissance uh, painters and artists did not do. Well, the thing about Baroque art is when you look at it, and this really bothered me when I started thinking about the Millennial Kingdom, is that they started taking the Bible and shoving the occult into there. They started, you know, putting um, uh, saints and, you know, biblical scenes with like Europa and the bowl and, you know, Pan and, you know, just horrible did stuff. You, when, did, when did the Reformation come in? Because that was given a bad name when that was more of the true enlightenment. Um, but now at the timeline, I was like, when did that take place? Yeah, I, I don't know if, uh, if the Reformation, I don't know if it did happen or not. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say. But so what I what I did in my study, you could watch the video. I also have an article on the of the same script, just like I read a script tonight. Um, on the Millennial Kingdom and Mud Flood, uh, Wastelands of the Seraphim is showing how there were all these. I pulled up all these scriptural passages where it was warnings: do not go out to the wastelands. Uh, Babylon would be buried, you know, in Egypt, and all these places. Don't go to these places because this is where the evil spirits dwell. This is where the dragons dwell. And I, I, I built the case that a dragon is actually an angel, a seraphim. That the that the angels are actual. The actual dragons are are angels, um, and. And so what would happen if, if, so, if you tell someone, don't go out to Babylon, right? The human nature is going to be like, why are you telling me not to go out there? I mean, I've learned that on this website. If I tell someone not to look into something, they go run off and look into it, right? It's just, it's, it's human nature. It's what, what happens. And so, um, and so Yahusha and the saints be like, don't go out there. And they go out there, they learn from the watchers, they learn from them, they start bringing it back into the society. And then the society be, starts becoming corrupted because uh, Torah teaches us what to do to someone in a Torah society if they're coming in and corrupting. You're to put them to death. Apparently, they weren't fulfilling Torah. They weren't following through. People are coming and getting corrupted, and it just it snowballs from there. It just collapses. I mean, if you have a generation of people that live for a thousand years, I mean, we live, if we're lucky, 80 years, right? And think about how sinful somebody gets in 80 years. If you're living a thousand years, uh, we just you're going to get really sinful and really corrupted. Um, and so that's kind of how it started to degenerate. And you know, we see like Yahushua is pleading with people. Look, I love. I'm, I'll give you guys my love, my grace. Just come to me, know me. And and people are like, nah, you know, not really interested. You know, I like the. I like what I. I like what I get from you. Um, you notice what the war was about. It said in the Old Psalm, the war was over the crown. 
the crown. Everybody wants the crown. Everybody wants to eat from the tree of life. Um, but nobody, you know, the people want to steal it. They want it for themselves, but they don't want to live the life in order to get it. That's the story of the human existence. It's why everybody goes for the knockoff, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They prefer that over the tree of life. Um, you know, so hopefully that kind of answered your question. And in a nutshell, what I think happens um, that you can actually see that in the official narrative. You can, they kind of, they, they switch dates around, things move things around, but you can actually see uh, a, a peaceful shalom worldwide government that is being deteriorated from within through the vices, uh, the decisions of the people. So um, basically these buildings, you know, from that time and everything and, and all the, they were dismantled and a lot of it destroyed. Why would they do that instead of just letting it keep working? I don't, I don't get that. Well, not all the buildings were destroyed. I mean, I saw many buildings in Europe that were stunning, like the Palace of Versailles. You go to um, Venice. I mean, Venice is, oh my goodness, it's just beautiful. Go to the palaces there in uh, Austria, just all over. There's, you know, the, but then, you know, through the years, like World War II destroyed tons of things in Germany and other places. Uh, the Civil War was a huge destruction of it. So you see two things. You see one is where they're actually, uh, for example, um, uh, there's been great research done to show how the, the Capitol buildings in all the states in the United States, they all are some big, beautiful Tartarian building. Those were not destroyed. Uh, they did selectively choose cities like San Francisco, Chicago, uh, Buffalo, um, uh, St. Louis, other places where they did systematically destroy them. And it was a psychodramatic event. It was, you know, you, you, you bring millions of people, like in the 1800s, millions of people by horseback and train. Um, I mean, how they were able to do that is just mind boggling. But they bring them all out to Chicago and, you know, they say, oh, we just built this. And, and then, oh, and look at this, the big fire, it destroyed it. And they all watch as it all goes down. It was all a psychodramatic event where you brainwash, you indoctrinate people, and then you, you know, you, you give them something dramatic to really, really stick in the brain. Um, I guess, so, I guess my, my question is because I know, okay, I know that a lot of the buildings still exist, but there yeah. seems to be some parts missing. You know, they filled in things with stained glass windows, which used to, you know, and the sure. whole thing about the capacitors and, and all that. And they removed all that so that, you know, if it operated off the ether, it no longer does. So uh, do you think that when Messiah up and left, that all of that equipment stopped functioning and that's why they tore out the important bits or... Why, you know, why would they destroy a whole system that apparently had free energy, free everything? I guess that's, that's where my disconnect is. Like, how did it come to, I understand they destroyed a lot of stuff, but why? If, the, if, if it was so bad. Well, we would still have a connection to it. We would still probably be like the um, Breatharians, right? We would be being filled. And so they'd have to destroy it. Well, yeah, it's the same reason why uh, Satan turned the earth into a globe, right? He, he, they want to, 
they want to hide the creator. They want to hide his story, and um, and also enslave you. I mean, that, that's so. One of the big conclusions a lot of the mud flutters will come to is that, it, like, the big conspiracy is that they're they're hiding free energy, and I I would agree that that's a huge conspiracy, but that does not explain to me uh, the destruction of this worldwide empire just over energy. But that being said, Satan wants to enslave us. He doesn't want us to have, you know, all the free stuff. And um, and so why why would he, when he was released, why would he be like, hey, free energy for everybody? He wouldn't do that. And so you just, you would lie about that. Again, I, he would invert it and put a twist. Yeah. And create electric companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he would. I mean, you look you at... You mean the, monopolies, right? Y yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> stuff that, that stuff that can kill you. Yeah, it's very dangerous. Zap. Almost, almost everything we think of in society was created post-mud flood. I mean, I don't... I'll give you an example. My wife's best friend... Um, her uh, father died last year. He was a very old guy. And he, um, he, he found out he was going to die. He had a stroke. And he refused. He didn't want to go to the hospital. And he's like, I'm not going to the hospital. And, and so his daughter, my wife's best friend, um, honored that and said, okay, we won't take you to the hospital. You had a stroke. But we'll, we'll just bring a doctor. We'll have him check you out. The doctor's like, there's nothing I can do. He's going to die. And anyways, so they left him at home, and uh, her siblings were trying to get the government to uh, bring him out of the house so that they could take him to a hospital because they thought that was so inhumane. Anyways, he died that night peacefully at home. He didn't want to go to a, what I call a death camp, a hospital. And what my point to this is that uh, it, it, what amazes me about this story is that we how far we've come from human as, as human beings like far detached from the rest of history that like if if someone is is going to die like how dare you not take that person to the hospital how dare you right like this person did, you know he need, this is where he needs to go and this is um we're all of human history when you're going to die you're just you're going to die like you just be like you know, find me a nice rock that I could lay on my head on and give me a blanket, give me something comfy, you know, a sip of water, I'm good to go. Um, and it's, it's just, yeah, it's incredible how all these things that these conveniences that Satan introduced, um, I think hospitals were, in, I, I think the modern hospital state was introduced by Satan. And I, I, I have a whole study on that about like demonology and all that stuff, how they function with healthcare workers and stuff. But um uh, according to some books I've read, but yeah. I mean, so your paper on vaccines from a hundred years ago about the, how all that was a hoax and your history on it. I'm like, guys, and people have put some things out there, but that one you wrote up is really concise and sums it up on a, on a level, not as much deeper than others have seen it. Like guys, this is, this is nothing new. They rolled this out before a hundred years ago. A hundred years before that, uh, and it's really, um, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So, but going back to the yeah, the interesting thing, I, it, all this stuff was everything. I mean, you you look at like um, I have, you know, I I went through a whole list. I came up with like a like forty or fifty things that were introduced 
just after the mud flood that never existed in the history of the world that we know of. You know, archaeology, psychology, philosophy, you know, well, not philosophy, philosophy goes back, but um, anthropology, you know, like it just um, going on and on and on and on and on, you know, the scientism and, you know, all, you just go on and on. It's like all these things were introduced and including the hospital systems, all that stuff. And so, yeah, but that, that explains... I'm being repetitive at this point. Hopefully that explains why Satan would lie to us. He just wants us all to be enslaved to him. He wants us to be lied to. He wants us under his control. He doesn't want us to be free. Um, I read that scripture Again, that, verse. Um, I, just real quick. Did, did you also share one time, or we've read about it, like the history of the university or the college system in America. It ain't as organic as it's um, pretended to be. We're giving everyone an education. No, it's much more, um, let's say, Luciferian, um, to put it politely. Um, origins of all of that. Indoctrination. Yes, and it's called a yeah. It's also called a degree, which is fascinating. I was just thinking about that the other day. Ooh, <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's interesting. You know, you've got to do this. And again, they took over the buildings. You know, cursed language. You've got to go over that because. There's so many things that are in our face and we just missed it. Like, like that one, a degree, you know, I didn't, as soon as you said it, I got it, but I didn't get it before. You got to do that study. Yeah. I mean, you, it's, it's pretty shocking when you look at our language use. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, where I don't believe that any true writer of scripture would have written in Greek um, because the Greek language by itself has the name of deities in its language use. Like right now we're on, for example, Discord. That's that's a deity. Um, it, it is traced to a deity. But even in the English language, you have, if I were to tell you good morning, what am I telling you? I'm telling you to have a good time morning. Um, some people will laugh at this, but it's, it's shocking how much of our language is like, um, you know, you write in cursive or you, when you learn to spell, right? In, in, in words, you're writing a spell. It just, it goes on and on and on. All the things that, that our language was designed around uh, that are actually, uh, it's, the English language is almost like a curse. It's like one big curse. And um, the language and of I've a cult. A, I've got an interesting video I can share with you guys uh, about that. Sure. Yeah, share away. I'll put it, I'll put it down there in interesting so, you know, the history of the English language, even by the official narrative, is not that old. And it didn't really take off um, until, uh, you know, the, the Isn't formation. it basically fallen angel, fallen angels language? I'm not sure. I, I couldn't answer and that. Gave, and, and again, they, they, they took a whole, I think one way is they took a holy language and they cut it in half. And by giving us half of it and then duplicating it as they've done. You know, this means like what you just shared with morning. Um, <laughs> they've, um, this is the English, the English. This is the fallen angels gave us this language. As you said, what happened with um, Great Britain in the United States using this language? Well, what yeah. happened, what we're saying 200 years ago, who came out? Yeah, exactly. The English language basically and you could trace back to like you know shakespeare and you know which wasn't that long ago that you know he was forming the language supposedly you know and we all have our thing on shakespeare and you know who he was or they or whatever but it wasn't until really 1812 and right around then 1776 really but right then when all of a sudden you have england and you have 
America, the two beasts, and they come up, they become the world power. Now everyone's speaking in English. And um, it's really a, uh, a, a, a what I call now a post-mud flood language. I, I said in there, like, maybe people spoke English uh, at some point in the Millennial Kingdom, but it wasn't anything like we do now. I got a I got a question, Noel. I don't know if you've uh, if if you've gone over it or thought about it, but what what are you, what's your take on the four corners um, of the Earth? Because uh, <laughs> if it's a circle, there aren't any corners, um, and and south would be out, and north would be in, so corners couldn't exist. Well, no, I think it's a circle within a square, uh, or corners. Maybe it's rectangular. or I don't triangular. I don't know. I mean, well, it can't be triangular, I guess, if there's four corners. Um, but the there's this, yeah, there's the circle of the Earth, the face of the Earth, and then, um, so I do believe that that Antarctica is a big circle. But yeah, it it appears that there are corners on the end on the edges of it. So I would just place it as a circle and a square. That's how I. I oh, see what's it. funny is somebody on a globe um, model. They put like a, um, what was it, a pyramid or something. And like, I think they were trying to find some corners if you did something like this. And there's this point on the island I live. And they put a little pyramid there like this is one of the corners. <laughs> and I was laughing because because the model that they were using. and but the, But the thinking behind it, I think it was going to... What we're getting at is his creation is being revealed to us and the truth of it. Somebody had brought up, um, who brought up the uh, gargoyles? And I, yeah, what are your thoughts on the gargoyles? Because that's, uh, that's one of the things that I'd like to look into and I still have un unanswered questions with. Yeah, that was what my thought was, and it came to mind when you were talking about the dragons in the Millennial Kingdom, you know, not to go to those places where these these angels, these evil spirits dwell, and, and it made me think of these gargoyles uh, here, and I put, put that picture in there because you see them, they have wings, and, uh, you know, this demonic-looking uh, type of creatures, so it just, I don't know, it just, that's what came to me on that that thought and then we see these in in cities where they're put on the corners of buildings a lot of times as a i don't know lookout or whatever you want to however whatever reason they're, they're doing it so that's that's more or less why i wanted to show that yeah it uh that's one of the things i paid attention to when i was over there and it's something that i don't exactly have answers for what you just showed a picture of is obviously Notre Dame, which believe it or not burned down in a ceremony uh it was like like a week before we arrived and we were we were we arrived in paris uh when you know they had it all taped off and people were standing there to look at it. they were still cleaning up the destruction when we arrived there um, and so that has, but there were, there's gargoyles in all the buildings all over there. And a lot of them are used for uh, water drains and things like that. Uh, so they're kind of like, it's a practical use that they give a decoration to, but it does, it makes me wonder if maybe they were just warnings. Like don't, you, you know, they were never in, they weren't inside the, the cathedrals. They were on the outside and maybe that was just a warning. Don't go to them. I don't know. Or maybe they're, you know, they're watchers and they're, that's what, 
they're in all this architecture and they're usually up high looking over everything. Maybe the wife is beaming out some evil. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I shared that video and interesting videos. It's called The Secret Language of Witches. And oh, okay. talks about the etymology of, of certain words and where things come from. It's very interesting. So I suggest watching it if you have the time. You know, uh, somebody posted uh, uh, um, about, I think, Oath of Yah said discord means to disagree, have lack of harmony. That's bugged me ever since I got on the server that, that it's called discord. I disagree with that. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on being purist. Yeah, we absolutely. Have, the administrators here at the Unexpected Cosmology have been trying very hard to have a group that is um, uh, not confrontational. And uh, there are other Discord groups within the community that kind of function on confrontation and argumentation. And um, I, we have, I've tried to put up a group where, cause obviously, you know, I have my, my, uh, my beliefs and stuff. And for example, there today in the, the, the feminine Ruach HaKadosh room, uh, there were people, you know, in there, uh, saying that they do not agree that the, the, the Ruach HaKadosh is a, uh, is a feminine, uh, being aside from the father. And I was just, like okay, that's cool. Let them um, express that, and um, we, we try hard to not be in discord here. So I can't say yep. that. Actually, I think today is our one year anniversary. Was it yesterday? One year anniversary that we launched this group, and we have had some discord here. So <laughs> if anyone has been here since the beginning of the last year, there has been some discord. But we are trying to uh, be uh, as much shalom here as possible. Actually, I, I think it's a pretty laid back group. Compared to other groups I've seen, well, I don't I mean, know about other Torah groups. This is my first Torah group, but just in general, speaking oh, of groups Torah, on the internet, it's pretty uh, Torah, Torah groups can be very confrontational, argumentative too. Like it's Extremely. it's not, yeah, it, it's just as much as any other group. Or you know, like flat Earth groups can be really like just nothing but confrontation and so um try we, I, I i try my best not to be here and just I, i've been blocked by flat earth groups as a flat earther <laughs> <laughs> i almost got blocked i almost got blocked as a flat earther it's crazy and you know i'm i'm not really confrontational at all I'm, i mean if something goes against what i believe or to be true then i'll say something but you know, know? all you have to do is say one word well, maybe, you know, we should start saying, because I recognized this years ago when guys were like, you know, flat earth. And I'd say, and I did this. I was sitting there with the, at a table and I said, Jesus, wow, they flipped on me then. And I was like, wow, I didn't even say I believe in him or anything. So, you know, now we should just saying Yahushua and Yahuwah. We should just start sharing <laughs> his name and have him go, huh? And blah, because it's like, okay, guys, now's, well, now's the time. The thing is that blessed are the peacemakers. That is definitely something to live by. But also, unity cannot be where there. Are, um, as he he also says that who can walk together who are not in agreement. So there's like mixture of both in trying to be peaceful and loving while also trying to sharpen each other to grow. 
Well, yeah, Proverbs talks about, you know, the wise man and the wise person will welcome uh, criticism and things you point out uh, on them or to them and examine it. Uh, the fools are the ones who will argue and reject. So it, it's we we have to think in humble terms. In what? Who am I? Who am I to say I know everything? I'm learning. I'm continuously learning, and love when people bring me more or different points of views, so I can better understand or examine things. So I'm totally open to that. I'm uh, going to be bringing on a. So as you guys know, I'm a, a Seventh-day Sabbath keeper. About half of the administrators here are Lunar Sabbath keepers, and the other half are Seventh-day. We all get Ooh. along pretty well. Um, I'm actually in talks right now with a author, Diane uh, uh, Cower. She writes exclusively on the Lunar Solar Sabbath, and we're in talks to have her write uh, a series of articles here uh, presenting her position on the Lunar Solar Sabbath. So. Um, I, I've pointed out many times that I actually like people who have a different point than me, uh, perspective. And the reason being, and also, um, uh, Oath of Yah is in here and she wrote a couple phenomenal articles on why the full moon is the new moon and not the crescent moon. Now I'm currently a crescent moon individual. I have nothing against the full moon. I think she brought some amazing points and I, I do try to encourage uh, different viewpoints within the spectrum, partially because I want people to give me that same grace when they disagree with me, uh, but also because I am wrong many times and I have changed my position many times and I love to have a position to fall back on. So if I realize the crescent moon is not the new moon, then I have the full moon to fall back on because other people have that research. Um, and if I realize that the lunar solar is correct, I mean, I'm sorry, the seventh day is incorrect, I have that to fall back on, the lunar solar Sabbath. Um, and the only thing around here that, um, that I will remove people from the group is not when people disagree with me. I hope people understand they have that freedom to say, you're wrong, Noel, here's why. Um, the only people in the last year that we had to remove from this group were people that showed up in contempt of court. And what it meant was is that they were contemptuous towards my entire ministry. Like, Noel, I don't like anything you're doing. I don't care about anything you're doing. I'm here with this agenda, and I'm going to prove you wrong. And, I'm, and it's just like, okay, so you're not here to contribute. You're not here to, you know, you're just here to try to take out take down the ministry and divide and conquer um and that's when there is discord and those are the people that i have removed so a lot of the people here that visit discord they're they're not on board with this millennial kingdom thing that's cool with me um they they're free to disagree and um but you know if they were here just to oh i'm gonna take this guy down because he believes this and i don't like it that's that's when the discord is gonna <laughs> that's when we're gonna have conflict so um Hopefully everyone can, you know, rest assured on that, that I, I hope that I um, come across as uh, like I'm on the, the island of Molokai with Mike, kind of just kick back and uh, taking in the breeze. <laughs> I love how everybody has a different point of view and, and discusses it. And that's how we all learn. 